This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome to another edition of Ink Class with Carr. Dr. Gray Carr, I'm Karen Hunter. Let me thank everyone for being here. Um, How are you, dear? I am. I am. I'm extremely blessed. Uh, the sun is out today. I'm seeing people from Switzerland and Queens and all kind of folks from all over the world joining us today. And uh, it just makes me happy that we have community. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, always. always. <laughs> yes. It's beautiful, isn't it? Every week, people are coming from more and more places and different places. We really, uh, really seem to have begun to weave together a different way of us going about this business of learning together. Thank you for that. This is wonderful. And hey, everybody who's new and all our, all our fam who's continuing with us. We've been going. Have missed a week. Listen, um, and uh, it was weird seeing you in um, the verses with Jeezy and uh, Gucci Mane the other night. Uh, I just I just want to just, yeah. <laughs> I was like, Dr. Carr in the, is that Stacey Abrams popping into a, to a strip club? Uh, she pop. <laughs> what does that say about our culture that uh, could be a sitting governor, could be a sitting president, could pop into a Gucci Mane versus uh, Jeezy? Very tense. It's one of the most tense verses. Uh, what what brought you to the table? The only thing that would bring me to the table would be the young people. You know, we talked about that. Wow. As I look back over all these uh, these months now since May, we've been doing this. And, you know, I think about all the conversations we've had and now we have a challenge of like looking at them and I know in a minute we're gonna talk about um, James Priest, but it's like there's this overarching composition. Cause we talked about this a long time ago, back in the summer, how music in many ways, performers mark the stage of our lives. And so as I'm listening to these 30 somethings, uh, I'm watching them on social media, knowing all of the songs, all of the hooks, all of the samples in Jeezy and, and, and Gucci Mane. Yeah, I'm realizing this is the music of their teenage years and college years, college age years. And so that's why they know it. And so in my mind, I'm reflecting back to who I would have known at that time. When I was in college, of course, you know, we, we were in school prints. You know, those cats were, were high. In fact, I, I rep... My African American College Alliance joint right here. This, this is the throwback 91 joint. My man is back in business. So the brother who does it, his son is actually at Howard. And, um, but that was like the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and, and I was in law school at the time. And that's when, of course, you saw the so-called golden age of hip hop. So I understand. But I also understand as a teacher, I need to at least have a, 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 a foot in there. And, uh, you know, Gucci Mane actually, with the help of a ghost uh, 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 co-writer, uh, did his his uh, I guess you call it a memoir of sorts, and it's around here somewhere. I could put my hand on it. That's one of those books that I end up stacking somewhere, thinking I'm not gonna pick this up for a minute, and I should have been thinking about it earlier. But uh, it's it's well done too. That is an it is a really good autobiography. I I was mad when it was published because it was published in Simon and Schuster, uh, where I had my publishing partnership for ten years, and I was like, why in the hell did they give him? And then I cracked it open and I was like, okay, Alabama. Okay. I mean, he's, he's telling a story and it's very gritty, you know, it opens up with him getting arrested <laughs> in a very dramatic way. And then it takes us back to his Alabama roots. And it's like a really good book. 
And he's got a second one that just came out in October. Oh, okay. So I had to pick that one up. I didn't know about the second one. And that's a, see, and this is why you're showing us why we have to engage and we have to be able to see ourselves. You know, the ancient Egyptians had a, a, a phrase that translates roughly as my heart of different ages. And we talked about this too before in the summer, if I memory serves me correctly. Where, however old we get in life, we're just accumulating experiences that don't negate the previous experiences. So we have hearts of different ages. So to hear you say that about this brother relating his journey and setting it down in print, and we're going to talk about that too a little bit in a minute, the nature of the importance of that. It's important for us to recognize that we all go through those phases. And so I'm not even going to pretend that I stuck around for the entire verses. Because as far as I'm concerned, as instance, you said it about Simon and & Schuster and, and Gucci Mane, you know, these same institutions that built their wealth on our labor then excluded us from being able to siphon some of that labor built wealth back for our own institutional purposes. Now, recognizing uh, Black folk as commodity, want to profit from the very same people that they uh, profited from before. And so I'm, I'm kind of wary of that. And I'm looking at this versus series like, okay, Chirac, and I just haven't sat down and you probably can walk us through who's making the money off this because ain't nothing free. But so I'm not gonna pretend I sat there for the whole hour plus. But what I thought was fascinating at the very beginning, as you say, when you see Stacey Abrams come on the screen, and I'm always interested in that dynamic. The dynamic and, you know, I mean, you have, you know, every generation produces its own cultural meaning making. That's why we created that category in the Philadelphia, the Africana Studies curriculum, the question of meaning making. In that moment in time you're looking at, in that generational moment, what music, what art, what cultural texts and practices did people create to mark their specific moment in time? So every generation does it. It's interesting to see the protocols that kind of transcend time and space. So yeah, you got the strip club, you got the trap. I mean, you got the, all this stuff is there. And Stacey Abrams shows up. They, you know, they just kind of sit there, stand there quietly. Why? Because we know the protocol. This is an important person in a larger context. That's why we had a category ways of knowing. What's the protocol for correct entry and exit into spaces like that? And of course, the first thing that either of these brothers says, Gucci may say, uh, can you clear my record? <laughs> Jesus started laughing. Stacey Abrams, who, by the way, of course, we know many of you all who are watching probably are fans of Stacey Abrams under her nom de plume because she got a whole series of romance novels. So there's a lot of ways she could have entered that space, right? She's a writer in addition, in addition to everything else, she is lawyer, uh, politician, uh, organizational force, you know, motivator, all these things. But Stacey Abrams kind of laughed and said, well, you know, a governor could do that. But uh, that's not something to talk about right now. We need to talk about right now. And then she goes into voting. But I laughed because the way she said it, and it was interesting the way she said it, because the way she said it said to me, like, was that a little lightweight uh, announcement that you're going to take the governor's throne from Brian Kemp in two years? In my mind, it's very clear to me that Abram's probably the best movie. play is to, is to stay, you know, stay in the momentum of this Democratic Party politics, but keep enough of a distance to maintain the momentum that she is tapped into as part of a larger wave. And, and that's something we're gonna talk about as well. But I thought that, to me, that was the most 
interesting moment in that whole thing was how she handled uh, Gucci saying, can you clear my record? You know, if I'm the governor, I can, but uh, we'll, let's, we'll talk about this another time. Yeah, in two years. <laughs> Let's stay there for a minute, because I know we're going to take a journey, because we promised last week that you were going to just, uh, you know, un unearth the 1947 March on Washington plan in 1964 March on Washington plan. We're going to look at like maybe the first two or three uh, demands or goals and like use them as a springboard into what we should be doing now. But we are in the midst of a uh, transfer of power. Whenever it happens, it's going to happen. Uh, it was a very interesting thread from the actor Ed Norton. I don't know if you you saw it uh, on Twitter, where he talked about you know Donald Trump's move is to stall and not so much to dismantle this democracy, but to stall so that he can cut a deal because he knows that maybe jail prosecution is very imminent. And the longer he can create chaos, maybe they'll come to him and make a deal so that he can leave and go wherever he's going to go uh, and ride off into the sunset. And then Biden's talking about putting maybe Rahm Emanuel into his cabinet. How should we Black people be looking at all of the machinations that are happening right now, Dr. Carr? You already know, Professor Hunter. Um, first of all, I did read Ed Norton's uh, thread on Twitter. And, you know, a couple things. It always strikes me how intimate relationships are among the quote-unquote elite, the controlling classes in a society. So we know Ed Norton as a, an actor. And he says, you know, and, and my father was a federal prosecutor. So, you know, I've, I've seen this growing up. Pause. You see, <laughs> see, a lot of times, it isn't just Drew Barrymore, right? Or even it's three generations of the Barrymores that are actors. I mean, you know, once privilege attains a certain status or a certain level of wealth, that wealth transfer enables subsequent generations to do what they want. Of course, Ed Norton can be a, uh, an actor. I mean, of course, Pete Buttigieg can kind of play around and go make money. I mean, his parents, both academics at Notre Dame. I mean, that is one of the fantasies of the so-called American dream of capitalism. Uh, we want my, I want my children to do better than me. Yeah, you want to lay that, lay that foundation. So, if, first of all, Ed Norton, who we wouldn't necessarily think would know anything about this, knew about it almost by osmosis because he grew up in a household with a lawyer who was involved in prosecutions, federal prosecutions. So that, that's number one. Number two, I think his read, informed as it is by that by that experience of growing up in a space like that, um, is probably very accurate. I mean, it's very clear that. Uh, you know, Tish James got something for that ass, <laughs> Brother Donald. So, uh, yeah, he's he can't escape what's coming, at least not easily. And I don't think it was Freudian slip or otherwise when he was out there with his clavering rallies leading up to the election when he said, you know, maybe I have to leave the country. Yeah, dude, you ain't just talking. Because Donald Trump's number one objective is survival. And so, you know, that's that doesn't look good for him coming up. These 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 uh, investigations will continue. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with Norton on that regard. Now, I do think, however, the the alliance between Trump and I don't call it Trumpism. Again, I think this is what happens when mass media engages in this attempt to continue to sustain this false narrative of this American exceptionalism, this myth making. It's not Trumpism. Trump is a symptom of a much deeper structural element of this society. White nationalism, white supremacy, 
Trump isn't the inventor. Trump is the inheritor. In many ways, Trump is just the latest iteration. So calling it Trumpism is a convenient way to try to localize it and get people to engage and look at Trump. No, I'm looking at you. Yeah, don't don't do that. Hey, Trump is the big head, but the Wizard of Oz is behind the curtain. And you can't play me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So at any rate, uh, his quote unquote attack on democracy, which isn't an attack on democracy, the United States, in other words, everything that he has done so far is legal. Either it either because it is it has been done by attacking the literal institutions with the rules the institutions laid out for how to be engaged, or because when he has transcended the rules, those in charge of safeguarding those institutions have remained silent, either because they are complicit and think that this is in their interest, or in the case of some of the Democrats, they are silent because they realize that they have a commitment to maintaining the illusion too. And this is gonna become very important when we look at the March on Washington movements. Again, like so we talked about last week, the 43 March, we talked a little bit about the 63 March, but what I really want to do today, I hope we can get into a little bit before we get into question and answer and discussion, is to think about how all of these pieces work together. And they work in a larger social structure that is not just one thing. So the electoral politics dimension, particularly at the national level, is sustained by a way of knowing that is thoroughly committed to continuing to reinforce this mythology of these American institutions that were at some point in the distant future, which can't be too distant for a young country of two and a third, you know, uh, uh, two and a third centuries old, you know, sometime in that in that recent past was somehow better than it is now. Again, commentators saying Donald Trump is the worst president in American history. Okay, what about them first dozen that had my people enslaved? I think anybody competing against them is going to have to be fighting for number two or actually number 13 or 14. I mean, come on now. But 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 the idea is no, 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 no. We have sanitized the early part. This is the days of yore, the founding fathers. And so American democracy, yes, it's being tested. Yes, it's being strained, but it's resilient. I hope like hell is not resilient. Come on. <laughs> I hope it's not resilient because this thing got to be remade. So Trump finally, in terms of what Norton laid out, there's the personal interest Trump has and the criminal enterprise of his blood's uh, blood, uh, ch- his bloodline, his children and all of them. Um, and then there is the larger social structure that benefits from him doing what he is doing. Um, and that's why I think the idea of a Biden-Harris administration, which none of us who study history or who are involved in any way in organizing and doing any work that engages people in this society, particularly our people, as you do every day, Karen, uh, none of us expected that Biden-Harris would be or do anything uh, other than what the quote-unquote centrist Democratic Party would do, which is populate a Biden-Harris administration with, uh, with, uh, with, with, not only say refugees, but with, (laughs) say it. Well, with, 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 with salvage parts from the Obama administration, from the Clinton administration, any more than when George W. Bush came in with Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, they're from the Nixon administration, these two, <laughs> you understand? And then populate that going forward. So even to speak of a Merrick Garland as a potential nominee for attorney general, lets you know that as in the words of uh, the late football coach of the Minnesota Vikings, they are 
who they thought they were. In other words, nobody, I mean, no, the, the politicians aren't superheroes. They're not avatars for social movements. I mean, set aside that Avengers endgame fantasy stuff, these cats are centrists. And the only way you drag them anywhere other than where they are is through pressure. Rahm Emanuel should not hold any position in no. any cabinet. But you can we can't put that on the Biden administration alone. We put that on the Obama administration. And before that, when he was a congressman out of Illinois. In other words, these are systemic problems, systemic positions. And will they do it? I have no doubt that they will in many ways, uh, in, in some ways. Now there will be, but then at the same time, there will be other uh, uh, factors. It was good to see the Hispanic caucus in Congress, for example, say 20% of the cabinet should be, uh, I don't know, I don't know what you will call it, Latinx, Latino, Hispanic, but even that's just demographics. Now in the case of interior, it was very interesting to hear some of our First Nations uh, kin, the First Nations family, the so-called Native Americans saying they'd like to see Deb Ho Ho uh, Holland, uh, uh, Congresswoman Deb Holland perhaps appointed as Secretary of the Interior. Why? Because the, the Secretary of the Interior is the unit in the cabinet that's responsible for engaging with the quasi-sovereign, and I hate to say quasi-sovereign, I'd like to say sovereign, but with the captive nations of Native America. And anytime you're talking in 2020 about the fact that the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the, in the Department of the Interior is stamped primarily by non-Native Americans, you're talking about colonizers continuing in the colonial project. But Biden-Harris is not any different than Obama-Biden. It's not any different than uh, Clinton-Gore. In other words, these are, it's not, it's not a duopoly in the sense that there aren't distinctions, which is why I think it's important for us to look at the history to let us know what we've, how we've succeeded in the past so we can improve on it. But, but there's certainly no surprise. They will only respond to pressure. And, and I think this is the lesson that we have to learn from our previous uh, struggle. We have to always struggle and put pressure on these folks because they are not our champions. They're no. employees. And it looked like um, AOC and Cori Bush, newly elected, and a host of others are here for the pressure. And it was good to see, you know, there's, there's this notion that we have to fall in line now that, you know, no, we're not. As a matter of fact, this is the time to fall out of line. This is the time we will not go back to 2016 when we were just happy that we have a president that's black or in this case, not Trump. Right. No, this is the time to double down on pressure. So I'm, I'm glad that we're doing these uh, examinations of what was done before, what Africans have done, Africans can do. And it was a lot of work as we talked about last week put into planning for our future. Somehow we forgot but not in class with cars. So I'm, I'm so grateful that uh, you have dug out. I didn't even realize it was a 1940-something movement. So this is going to be really exciting today. Oh, yeah. We're going to have, well, well, we started last week. And and it is very exciting. It's very exciting. In fact, I want to pause here for a second and think about that in terms of, uh, you know, there may be a couple people who say, oh, Gucci Mane got a book? Yeah. And then as you say, well, he got two books? And maybe worth reading? Sure. You know, what we're doing now is, you know, in a larger sense, we might call it inscribing. We are setting down a record. And, you know, this is a class, but it's not a class. And this is something you were saying. That, uh, in fact, I, I'd love for you maybe to say a few more words about that, Kieran, as, as we continue in this moment. Um, the importance of taking the concept of class outside of the brick and mortar university structure or the school structure so that we can 
delink the idea that you have to acquire a certain level of understanding or, or fork over a certain amount of money or have a certain uh, uh, um, kind of status in this social structure that we inherited in order to be in school, to be in class, to be in conversation. I mean, you were saying something the other day about this question of learning as collective and and, and everybody can participate. Maybe you want to say a few more words, but it's so important. Can't hear you. My mic is funky. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been teaching for 20 plus years. You've been teaching for longer than that. And what I knew probably in the first 10 years is that this university education, particularly in the thing called uh, the humanities, was by and large a worthless degree. You know, I have an English degree, you know, you have a law degree, a PhD, you have all of these things. And I think the vast amount of learning for me has come outside the classroom and it's come through discovery and it's come through relationship. And, and it also comes from remembering, you know, there's a, a thing about the elders and sitting at the feet of people and collecting and gathering. And this is what this is. And that's why I'm like, so excited that we have this space where we can, you know, come together, you and I, with what we collectively know, but then also, as we found, the information just keeps stacking. So it's about remembering, as you said, remembering who we are and then adding to it so that we never get, end up back here again. I, I, I'm going to say this until I'm blue in the face. I don't want to come back 50 years from now and we are in the exact same situation because it's our all individual responsibility to make sure that we're not. So we're going to give you all of the, the tools to build individually, collectively in your community. But it really starts with this, with the knowledge of self, and, you know, you're bringing all I could throw just about anything at you. And you have, you know, some historical perspective that that flows through our lens. And that's the other thing I think, you know, many of us have chased degrees in this white facing world for acceptance in this white facing world without understanding that the real power has always been in us. And they've been chasing all of our resources, both human capital and physical, you know, um, and it's all flipped upside down until we realize and stand in this purpose of like. We, our ancestors founded everything. Therefore, if we remember that we are everything and we are enough and not just enough, we have everything we need to build and we just need to remember and gather these, these, you know, pieces of information, which you bring it, you bring it to us every Saturday. I think, you know, we can't be stopped. So I'm, I'm like, yes, let's go. I agree. <laughs> so, I agree. I agree. Let, me, let me shout out Selena Montgomery. Selena Montgomery. That is the name under which uh, Stacey Abrams has written eight novels. Let's just say Stacey Abrams, eight novels. Where does she find the time? You're a writer. I mean, you. this is what you do to this, borrow from Barack Obama. No, no, no. Not, not like drum. This is what you do. How does she do? Is it discipline, Karen? How do you know that much work? What I imagine is that Stacey Abrams tapped into her fullness. So she likes to write. So she's going to make time to write. She went to law school. Right. She's going to go out there and organize. She's going to run for office because she understands there's a greater mission. You know, there's enough time, really, if we don't waste it, right? There's enough time to do all of the things that you want to do. Ooh. But I, I think we feel like, you know, we're waiting for life to, to crack open some magical something for us to realize why we're here. But every day is that pursuit. And I guess she got up and decided she wanted to write a novel. And then she wrote another one. And it because it's something that her heart wanted to do. And I think that a lot of people are afraid to do things. This, the thing I love about her more than anything is that she steps into this world fully 
unafraid of what anybody thinks or what anybody wants, because you got one life and she's living it. And not just living it for herself, those novels are for her, but she's also living in service to make sure that everybody else is good. And if if we all did that, my God. And that's what we're building toward, isn't it? That's what we're doing right now for people. And you know, something else you said, and you said this, uh, we, we were talking before, before we went on, you know, you said, you know, time, time is what gives you the muscle. And it's interesting for you to say that there has to be an investment of time. You look at a Stacey Abrams, you know, say born in Mississippi, but raised in part in Madison, Wisconsin, with parents who are academics. The reason them black folks is in Madison, Wisconsin is because the University of Wisconsin-Madison is there. So she grew up around academics. I mean, so the, the notion of learning, the notion of reading and writing as life practice, not in pursuit of a goal, but for the joy and beauty and necessity of the thing itself, you know, is something that you build over time. You you're, you see that, you practice it. And, you know, it's interesting, children, children do what they see. And so, you know, coming into that as a natural thing, assuming that this is just the way life is, we see that reflection. Now, for those of us who may not have grown up in a situation like that, we might get it at school. But if we don't get it at school, we get it later. Now, what you create now is a space where folks, some people, and, and shout out to everyone who's out there posting these pictures of books you bought and all the things. And we're talking about these books. I've seen a lot of pictures this last week of what the Negro wants, that new edition. Thank you for supporting Sankofa. This is the original edition, but you all, it, it has been reprinted. And you've been- Wait, let, me see, let me see the cover of that. What is that? Uh-huh. Let me see the cover. This, Let me see this the is cover. this is the uh, this I took the dust jacket off. This is the okay. this is the original, but the the uh, the the, the paperback now is like a peachish color. It says what the Negro wants. I I, I went by Sankofa the other day and they ordering, and I'm like, wow. See, this is what I'm talking about. And folks are, are are tweeting pictures, and that gives us the ability as we continue to build to when we decide, okay, we're gonna focus on a book like this for a couple of weeks. Folks will have it, and then we begin to really get into a deeper dive, and that takes time and this is something you were talking about now i was going to say one other thing i'll ask you what you meant about this question of not being able to rush things that's, that, that's important as well um and that's really what, where i'm going but but before that watching gucci main and watching jeezy and then seeing stacy abrams the way she she um she responded she can't be them they can't be her but together i mean the the idea that you know, folks who may listen to a Jeezy or listen to Gucci Mane, they say, I ain't voting, man, that's some bullshit. But to hear them and then to hear Gucci say, can you clear my record? Man, now their ears perk up. Yeah, see, a governor can do that. But guess what? I could be the governor in part because I've had a lifetime of training that prepared me for it. And now all y'all cats, this is what I want you to do. Whatever else you're doing out there on this day, press this button for me. Now I'm in here. Let's get some more people in this legislature and let's reform this entire justice system. So then when you ask me a question like that, I got two answers. One, on the BS, yeah, we're going to get rid of that stuff on your record. And we're also going to reform the educational system and the job structure and everything else so that you were never put in a position to even have a record. So, I mean, but 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 that's because everybody plays their position, which means somebody got to play the position of having all that stuff in her head. So that when you ask somebody a question like that, there's somebody there to be able to answer it for you. And, and you were talking about the fact that, you know, you can't rush Wait, that type of skill acquisition. Well, what did you mean when you talked about this? Not only that, but I just want to back up a little bit because yeah. she didn't come in with hot sauce in her bag. She didn't come in spitting lyrics. No. 
She didn't come in, you know, be bopping. She came in as Stacey Abrams. And you don't have to pander to people to tell them why you need to do a thing for yourself. Just right. be this. And I'm so sick. I mean, if, if any of the politicians are watching, that's how it's done. Just come in as your regular self. You don't have to placate and talk about smoking weed and listening to rap music because as if, as if that's all we are, or as if I can't appreciate you being a nerdy person, so-called nerd who likes to read and write. Come on. You know, let's just be who we are. Yeah. All right. But yeah, you know, I feel like, um, and, and it, maybe it's a, a folly of youth or when you get old, you feel like you don't have enough time because we don't have a lot of time on this earth. Let's just be clear, you know, in the billions and billions of years that this earth has been rotating, you know, if you get a hundred years, that's a long time, but it's really not enough. It's not a lot, it's not enough. And we waste so much of it, right? But things only happen over time. So we can, we gotta sit in the soil, right? I mean, it's just nature, right? Um, and I, I can only speak this strongly about it because I've watched it happen. You know, you wake up, you ask how to Stacey Abrams do it because you've been doing it every day. And before you know it, it's like working out or anything else. You build a muscle, like you said, for it. But that comes over time. You don't wake up tomorrow buff. You work out, you know, <laughs> you, it takes a minute, you know, and then your muscles have to do And it. Months later, you plant a seed. Months later, you know, if it's an oak tree, years later. You're not going to get a harvest until you put the work into the soil. And many of us want an instant, you know, because we have instant everything. Th things can be microwave, but that's not natural. And I'm, I suspect, you know, science will tell us all that microwave eventually will uh, cause a lot of problems they're going to find out after they study. Because it's not natural to break down the components of something molecularly that's been put together by God. You know, like the, we have to be OK with the with the time it takes. And if you feel like you don't have enough time, make sure that there's somebody behind you who can carry it forward, whatever you started. And make sure there's somebody behind them. That institutional knowledge that you talk about, why you're here, because you're literally standing on the shoulders of people who gave you a lot, and now you're given a lot. And then somebody listening here who might be in their 20s is going to take this, and then they're going to give a lot. But it's a collective, and we are because all of us have put our, our time in. So put your time in. It's okay. It's all right. It's not, you know, we're going to be all right. Put your time in. Put your time in. That's right. Put your time in. And realize you don't have to do everything. And realize that we all have roles to play. Uh, the ancient Egyptians used to say the purpose of life is to enjoy your life. But on the way to enjoying your life, as you enjoy your life, help everybody else enjoy their lives. Improve the living conditions for everyone. And, and, and so, like you said, I mean, you know, as we say, a lot of times people do what they see. I was very fortunate to come through um, a, a black community growing up that was heavily invested in the text through the church, as we talked about. I was very fortunate then to go to a historically black college where, you know, I got there at a time when folks who were then beginning to age out, who had come of age in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, um, you know, they had gone through Jim Crow, and which, which in many ways is the golden age of the black colleges. So I, I was able to understand the value and centrality of the text from people like Jamie Williams and McDonald Williams and Lois McDougall and H. Leon Prather and Dury Cox and H. Devereaux Brady. And I mean, uh, they, they, they put into us this idea that the text is central in learning. Whatever your craft is, is important. As you know, I was a theater major, but I understood theater from the inside out by studying the great playwrights, Alice Childers and Phyllis Hayes, uh, Philip Hayes Dean and 
Lonnie Elgin III, who were coming in, and then the ones that preceded them, T.E. Pogue and uh, Edmonds and all the great stage directors. These are black giants. You know, Willis Richardson from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, they instilled a quality. And so bringing it forward, you know, I didn't know any other way other than reading and writing. And once it became clear that, you know, I was going to be a teacher and that and that, and, you know, I had a lot of influences, Jacob Carruthers, Marumba Ani, but John Henry Clark, probably, in fact, mo more than any of them, being able to spend time with him, you know, the idea was you keep your library in your head. And it's fascinating to me now because with this, uh, with this plague out here, this virus, everybody's trapped at home. And we had these conversations and people always comment and they say, oh, you got all these books. I, mean, I don't know where else to put them. That's what I do. I mean, in other words, this, this is not, this isn't, this isn't performance. You know, these cameras are in people's houses. And so we, we're thinking, but that, that's uh, one other thing I'll say right quick is that, you know, in that process, then, like I said, when we had these conversations and, and, and you bring up a topic or, or somebody in question, answer or discussion brings up a topic, you know, none of us are experts on everything, but when you, when you take the idea that you're going to study the pe people of African descent, and you want to be aware of things, then our role as teachers is often to just be a connector. And in a minute, I mean, that's what we're doing week after week after week after, not deep dives, although we could go a lot deeper in a lot of the subjects, but to, to suggest that the subject is there, to use the language of Cedric Robinson in, in the preface of his book, Black Marxism, uh, which I read back in the day. In fact, I got the great, uh, the, the English edition, 1983. There, people have discovered Cedric Robinson now, but you know, back in the, uh, in the mid to late 80s, after Black Marxism came out, when people weren't, when a lot of people weren't reading it. It's like Robinson is like, I cannot exhaust this subject. Nobody can, but to suggest it is there, like when we heard with our brother, you know, when we were <laughs> we were talking the other day, he was talking about a Fort Negro, a Negro Fort. Man, he was like, wait a minute, Negro Fort. I need to go look that up. Negro Fort is incredibly important, but uh, but I hope today. Well, I know in fact today we're gonna do another suggesting the topic is there and, and and how we do it is by knowing that it was inscribed so music is inscriptions so you young people listening to Jeezy or you know listening to Gucci Mane they saying yeah yeah you know I know that I know that I know that I know that that's because the music was inscribed in your ears my nephew Ellington I couldn't tell you a two chain song where he can't perform Howard Homecoming I said wait a minute that's the one he's called Titty Boy because I'm going back in my uh, two chain two chain two chain like then my brother, I pick up my sister's son at the airport. He's a little boy. And he is like, you know, Lamborghini Mercy. Your chick, she's so thirsty. I'm like, boy, you 12 years old. I'm drunk and hot at the same time. Sip champagne on the airplane. I'm like, whoa, what? where is this coming from? <laughs> Let me get this boy to my house and get him the New York Times. But, <laughs> but my point is, he's doing what, and, and when he gets to be 30, 40, 56 years old, if that comes on, He's going to say, yeah, I remember when I was 12 years old, riding my uncle from the airport. And I was say, but the point is that after a certain age, the memory of those who experienced inscriptions like that goes away with the people's bodies. And when you come back in 100 years, will they be playing 2 chains? Will they be playing Jeezy? Will they be playing, uh, uh, will they be playing Gucci Mane? No, perhaps not. But they will be playing Let's Get It On. They will be playing Strange Fruit. They will be playing Paul Robeson. And, and that speaks to the power of the thing that endures. 
And that reminds me of something. This is a book by Miriam. Well, it's not by her. She's the editor, Miriam Lichtheim. It's called Ancient Egyptian Literature. There are three volumes. This is volume two. Um, I mentioned her, although I would much prefer, uh, he, I mean, this is this is my teacher right here, Theophilo Benga. His book, African Philosophy, The Pharaonic Period. That's Dr. Obenga right there, right there. He's in Congo. But um, published by a black publisher, Ayikwe Arama, Per Ankh Publishers. But I'd much prefer to use Obenga's translations, but one person can't do everything. And Arama is doing a lot of translations. But Lick Time uh, has this very useful three-volume compendium of ancient Egyptian literature. This is volume two, The New Kingdom, which takes you, roughly speaking, about maybe 1100 to 1500 to 1100 BC on the other side of the zero. So in other words, maybe 3,500 years ago to 3,100 years ago. And there is a text that they used to use in school to teach children how to write. And uh, she titles it, The Immortality of Writers. And she says this is very interesting. The basic thesis of this text, which is why the, how they taught the glyphs to children, but they were also giving what they would call a sebaite or teachings. In other words, this is something we want children to understand about the nature of scholarship and intellectual work and how it helps contain a society. They say, basically in this text, bodies, people die, go back to the dirt. But what is inscribed, what is written endures. And it survives, it's better than a tomb. It's better than biological children. In fact, they say here, it says, they gave themselves the scroll, the book, the writing board as loving son. Instructions are their tombs. The reed pen is their child. The stone surface their wife. People great and small are given them as children. For the scribe, he is their leader. And he goes on. In other words, children are given to education and the teachers are not their biological parents, but the text and the teachers become the parents of each generation. And I, have you seen that thing that's been going around in the last couple of weeks? You've got these little boys and these little black boys in this classroom. And the teacher is like, you know, if they score above an 80 for all their work on the week, we let them rap freestyle. And so I'm listening to these little boys rap. And, you know, they got the cadence. They got the swag. They got the beat. And I'm listening and I hear in my ear. How my nephew was rapping at two chains, except my next question is, do you have somebody in your life who's surrounding you with stuff other than what you're picking up on the radio and rapping on Fridays because you got an 80 or above on your work? And then I'm looking at the comments. People say, oh, that's so cute. That's so nice. And I'm like, this is the this is the complexity of the issue, because what endures. Oh, by the way. Oh, I'm sorry. I should read you one of the passages. This is this poem. This is from about 1100 B.C. Okay. Wow. BC. So the writing says, is there one like Hartajev? Is there another like Imhotep? None of our kin is like Neferti or Keti, the foremost among them. I give you the name of Ptah in Jehudi or Ka Kepare Seneb. Is there another like Ptahhotep or the equal of Kyreds? Every name that I just read is of a writer who is at least, at least a thousand years before this text. I've stood in the tomb of Tahotep. I've stood in front of the uh, step pyramid that was constructed under the direction of Imhotep on the Giza Plateau, near the Giza Plateau, 
goes back to 2700 BC. They're writing in 1100 BC about people from 2700 BC saying these are the writers that have endured in books. Mm. <laughs> so there's, there is more distance between the people they're writing about and them than there is between anything we're doing now. Take, take us back to Shakespeare, roughly about 400 years, right? Then do that three more times and you're getting close to what they were saying about their ancestors. And this, their writing is 3,100 years from where we are today. So when you say that we created, yes, yes. Why are you listening to these people who took quill pens and wrote one of the most deeply flawed documents that should be completely and thoroughly revised called the American Constitution. And you're looking at it like God somehow whispered in the ears of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and them cats. And they wrote something that is so fundamentally perfect that it only needs a little tinkering around the edges. That's because you don't remember. That's because you don't. Go and consult your own sources and understand that there's a whole universe of knowledge to apply now to the human condition of approving our lives. And you you asked me, uh, we were talking, you said it, it's somebody's birthday today and you asked me if I knew the brother. And I said, yeah, I, I know a little something about it, but then you that sent me to the books. So let's talk about him for a minute because I'm, oh, unless you want to say something about him. No, no, no. And I want to tell, you know, we have uh, 2,376 people. Hello, everyone. Uh, Please hit the thumbs up. Doesn't take anything, doesn't cost you anything. Just hit the thumbs up. It's all about algorithms and we are going to break that too. Break you know, it. I understand, I understand, you know, there's a rhythm to everything. Hit the thumbs up. It will take you no time to do that. Um, yes, let's let's go to to the birthday. You tell us, and he was from Philly. So I said, oh, you, you know, cause I know that's Philly, music, oh, composer. My home. And I was like, oh, uh, Dr. Carr is a musician as well. And this is, you know, we talk about Stacey Abrams being a novelist. You theater major, you play instruments, you can sing, you are a lawyer, you are, you know, it's like you live, you're living your life. And I love it. You love comic books. You like to watch Ratchet Television. <laughs> love it. We, we, we do all this stuff together. Yeah, we both do. <laughs> We care. We, we commiserate on a number of these things, but it ain't no different than anybody else. We live our lives from day to day, you know. And it was we live our lives from day to day. I think everybody in this room does things that everybody else would be surprised that they knew about it. I mean, that's Stacey Abrams' thing. I didn't even realize that she. I mean, this was this is a gap in my knowledge. I didn't realize that she had this whole other light until my friend Belithia Watkins, Dr. Belithia Watkins, and African studies at, at, at Howard told me. And I was like, what? So yeah, and then all of a sudden it made sense. Of course, of course. And 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 and, and you know, last uh, wow, what was it? Last week, I forget what day it was. It might have been Friday. We did a thing uh, on Paul Robeson, uh, teaching for change, the Howard Zinn uh, education program. They have a beautiful kind of teaching civil rights, teaching human freedom struggles. And uh, Jesse Halepin, my friend uh, Deborah Minkart, we did a thing on Paul Robeson the other night, and just talking about how here's a guy who, um, as we've talked about, you know, he's born in Princeton. His father and mother are there. They're much older. His father, William Paul, uh, William rather, I think William Paul, like William Paul Coates. His father, William, come, is, escapes enslavement in the 1840s in Roberson, North Carolina, gets to Jersey, marries his mother. His mother um, is from the uh, Philadelphia Bustles that go back 
at least in terms of the records we have, to the so-called American Revolution. Uh, they uh, were bakers and they had, you know, restaurants and things like that. She comes down through that line. In fact, her sister's, uh, Paul Robeson's uh, cousin, his auntie's daughter, his mother's sister's daughter um, is Sadie Tanner Mossel Alexander, a first black woman to get a degree from Penn, graduate from the law school, uh, moved to Washington, D.C. to go to Dunbar High School, the first high school for black people in the country, the finest high school for educating black children um, in the country for years, but that uh, that union produces Paul and his siblings, his brothers and sisters. And then the mother dies in a fire when he's like five or six years old. And then the white people in Princeton run Paul's father out of his pulpit. In fact, run him out of the denomination he was in. He ends up joining the AME Zion Church. Somerville, New Jersey eventually gets another pulpit after spending some years hauling ash and picking up rags and stuff, trying to keep the family going. And becomes a, gets back in the pulpit. In fact, his brother, Paul Rosen's brother, Ben, was the minister at AME, uh, Big Bethel AME Zion Church there in Harlem. Folks in New York know exactly where that is. Been in that, been in that church many times. In fact, that's where we had the reparations meeting a couple of years ago. Um, and I know we've talked about all this before, but I'm only bringing it up to say that Robeson then takes a test after the white principal at his school doesn't tell him about the test until like a little few day, a few weeks, like a couple of weeks before it's going to be held. If you score in the top three of the test, you get a full scholarship to Rutgers, which was the State College of New Jersey at the time. Robeson scores number one in the state of New Jersey with only a few days to prepare. And he makes it into Rutgers. His father passes away. It's like uh, when you read Paul Robeson's autobiography, Here I Stand, um, 1957 or 58. I got it around here somewhere because I was just using it for the thing. I, no, I, won't, I won't look for it. But it's almost like he spent his whole life trying to make sure his father would be proud of him. Robeson goes to Rutgers, becomes an All-American in 15 different, uh, gets 15 different, 15 letters in different sports, an All-American in football, uh, graduates at the top of his class, Phi Beta Kappa, gives a commencement speech, then goes off to law school, uh, goes to NYU for, and then transfers to Columbia. He's at Columbia, and uh, that's when he meets his wife, Eslanda, Essie, Eslanda Good. Eslanda Good's family, she's from D.C. Her mother, uh, they moved to D.C. Uh, her, well, actually, they moved from D.C., I'm sorry, they moved from D.C. to New York, so she ends up continuing her childhood and early adulthood in New York, but she was born in D.C. Her grandfather, her mother's father, was a dude named Cardozo, who was uh, born in South Carolina, the first black elected to a statewide office in Reconstruction, South Carolina. Then they lock him up for a year and run him out of the state of South Carolina when they let him out of jail. Complete gangster Jim Crow BS at the end of Reconstruction. He gets to D.C., reinvents himself, working in the federal government, rises up through till he becomes the superintendent of Negro schools in D.C. There's a high school named for him across the street from Howard, Cardozo High School. Uh, in fact, there's a big book called Men of Mark, uh, William J. Simmons. He's in there, Cardozo. But Essie Robeson ends up being a chemical uh, chemist, a, 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 a lab chemist at Columbia Medical Center, which is when she meets Paul Robeson in New York, who's going to law school at Columbia. The two of them hit it off. Next thing you know, they end up getting married. She leaves her career as a scientist. She's the first black person to be in a lab as a chemist at Columbia Medical Center. She, is, she says, you know what? I'm not going to do that no more. Because you, you can sing and act. He said, yeah, 
Yeah, but I'm an athlete too, you know. In fact, Paul Robeson, when he starts practicing law, he graduates from Columbia. He, no, I'm sorry, he's still in law school at Columbia. What is he doing on the weekend to pick up some extra money? Playing pro football in what becomes the NFL with Fritz Pollard and them against Jim Thorpe. In fact, Paul Robeson team beat Jim Thorpe team. They playing professional football on the weekends. I mean, you can't even make this up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So Paul and Essie Robeson get together and she says, you know, you're a great actor. Uh, can act, yeah, yeah, and he's doing acting, and they got little black uh groups at the black YMCA in Harlem, this kind of thing. So she ends up trying out for some plays. He yeah, he gets cast and shuffled along, which is UB Blake and, and Noble Sissel, a Broadway play, black play, first black play on Broadway. Then he gets in Eugene O'Neill, all God's children got wings. Then Essie is negotiating with Oscar Michaud, the great sound, the black filmmaker, the pioneer black filmmaker. He's got a, a movie he wants Robeson in. 1924, they make it called Body and Soul, where Robeson plays this preacher with a split personality. And he, people can watch this. Y'all can go find Body and Soul. You can find that on YouTube. Um, and then, make a long story short, because I'm going to go through the life of the Robesons. We can talk about that another time. Between the mid-20s and the time Essie makes transition in 1965 and Paul makes transition about 11 years later in 1976 in Philadelphia, you see them become the ultimate expression of black possibility in a world that is reforming itself and shaking off colonialism. I mean, they travel the world. She goes through Africa with their son, Paul Jr. She writes a book called African Journey, where she's meeting with and organizing with and talking with and learning from black women in Africa. They're in England. They get adopted by the African students who are going to school in England and inducted as honorary members of the West African Student Union. You see them in African clothes sitting there. Um, Robeson is casting these young black students, these young students from Africa in his movies. So you see Jomo Kenyatta in Son is of the River and this kind of thing. He quits making movies because he don't like the stereotypes they have of black people in the movies. He thought he could change it, but he moves away, becomes one of the biggest recording artists in the world. And then in the late 1940s, they take their passports. They accuse them of being anti-American and communists and agents of a foreign power. So with the Robesons and the Du Boises and the Pattersons, these are women and men. A lot of these people are married. Louise Thompson Patterson um, and William Patterson, who's a lawyer. Shirley Graham, W.E. Du Bois, um, uh, Alphaeus Hunt and his wife, they, Dorothy. They, they are all, these are couples. They're charging the United States with genocide at the United Nations in 1951. And they said, you know what? These Negroes got to be shut down. And so they try to break their spirits, but their spirits are never broken. But I'm saying I have to say that human possibility is only limited by what we can imagine. And often our imagination is limited by our circumstances. And Paul Robeson was such a powerful figure. Essie Robeson, such a powerful figure. In fact, I don't know if I have, uh, hmm. The uh, Barbara Ransby did an excellent. I would want. Oh yeah, here we go. People get this book, Barbara Ransby. Undefeated. This is great. The large unconventional life of Mrs. Paul Robeson, Barbara Ransby. This is a. Uh, of course, Essie wrote her own books. We had to do one especially on Robeson. We had to do one, and then I think they recorded actually. Uh, Zan always records, so there we, we have a recording of the conversation we had the other night. But I bring it up to say that we're only limited by our sense of the possible. And this woman is a scientist who becomes a huge, she becomes an anthropologist. She goes back and trains. In fact, she's having conversations with Zora Neale Hurston about the nature of anthropology. Because remember, Zora, after she leaves Howard, is at Columbia. I mean, so the, when steel sharpens steel, when you're in community, this in-class experience we're having is us in community. I know we're going to get to question and answers in a minute. I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of the time. But when you, when, when you brought up the, the name James DePriest the other day, 
whose birthday would be today. He made transition in 2013, whose birthday is today, born 1936 in, in, in Philly. This is a man who embodies much of what we've been talking about the last half hour, 45 minutes. Um, some people may not know the name James DePriest. Uh, James DePriest, D-E-P-R-I-E-S-T. Uh, his mother, Ethel, was, I think, the youngest sibling. There were three girls of Marian Anderson, the great singer, friend of Paul Robeson, the great, uh, great contralto, um, who lived until 96 years old. Um, Marion Anderson from South Philly. In fact, when I lived in Philly, many days, I went down past Lombard and South Street in, in Marion Anderson's neighborhood just to go around because my man, the man I worked for for many years when I was in grad school at Temple, Charles Leroy Bloxham, Mr. Bloxham. That's, that's my man to this day. Charles Bloxham out of Norristown, Pennsylvania, the great book collector. I mean, a lot of my book collecting technique, I learned from watching Charles Bloxham work. Um, but um, Bloxham, Love Paul Robeson. In fact, well, that's a story for another day. I'll tell you, it's a whole backstory to Robeson and, uh, and Bloxson. Because the last 10 years of his life, after his wife made transition, Paul moved in with his sister in West Philly, the Paul Robeson house, which is still up. Uh, Fran Austin, many years, the West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance, now it's being managed by the next generation of folks. Got a lot of young people involved. The Paul Robeson house is open. I mean, not during the plague, but they do a lot of online stuff. Uh, they are in control of the place. They're always looking for people to help support them. Paul lived there with his uh, with his sister for the last 10 years of his life. And Mr. Bloxham was one of the few people who every once in a while, he might catch a glimpse of Paul Robeson because Robeson really didn't entertain a lot of visitors at the point. But um, the reason I, bring, reason I bring all that up is that Robeson, I'm sorry, Mr. Bloxham also loved Marian Anderson. In fact, Charles Bloxham was on the Pennsylvania State Historical Commission that put up the historical markers around the state of Pennsylvania. And one of those markers is in South Philly near the birthplace and then the home church of Marian Anderson, who was the auntie, the auntie of James DePriest. And James DePriest grew up to be the pioneering black conductor and one of the, one of the top of any background conductors in the history of American uh, performance and global performance of what some people call classical music, but I think more appropriately European classical music, because there's a African classical music, Asian classical music, indigenous classical music. But in terms of European classical music, the Beethoven's, the Bach's, uh, James DePriest is on the very, very, very short list. He was the, uh, the Dean of Conducting Emeritus at Juilliard, uh, James DePriest, uh, conducted every major American orchestra. At one point, another came under his baton. Uh, James DePriest took up residency uh, for decades at Oregon, the Oregon Symphony Orchestra, and moved it from a regional power to a nationally known and internationally known um, orchestra. In fact, that's where Marian Anderson made transition at, at age 96. She lived the last year of her life after she had a stroke. She moved in with him there in, in, in Northwest, Pacific Northwest in Oregon. Um, so he conducted the organs, uh, the 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 organ symphony orchestra, uh, the national symphony symphony orchestra. He was a conductor of the national symphony symphony orchestra. So you would think that being the niece, the nephew rather, of Marian Anderson, the great Marian Anderson. If people don't know anything else about it, they know about her Easter Sunday concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. But uh, she's much, 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 much more than that. But you would think, okay, so he grew up. She trained him. 
if folks want to learn more about their relationship, one good place to go is uh, is a um, is an interview. Studs Turkle, the great interviewer and raconteur kind of uh oral historian conducted and it's been recorded you look for it you look in you you type in something like uh studs turkle t-e-r-k-e-l james depriest and marion anderson you'll be able to find it. i think it's around 1966 he asks they're, they're together he's interviewing them both he's really interviewing marion anderson but she but he's there and he's a legend already himself young legend conductor he's really something he's, he was born in 1936 uh so by the time He's in his mid-20s. He's already developed a reputation for being, uh, to having this, this, this capacity for music as a conductor, composer, but mostly conductor, right? So he's asking, uh, Studs Terkel is asking them, he asked, what influences did you have on your nephew? And so, James, what influence did your aunt have on you? So he says, well, you know, uh, she, used to, she, she made sure we had the recordings. She made sure I had the recordings. She made sure I had that the albums, uh, that the recordings were already around, always around the house. Before he answers, she says, you know, James doesn't tell people what he's doing. You know, uh, we're often the last people to hear. We have to hear about what James is doing from other people. As a boy, he didn't bother his aunt. He just listened. He picked up this. He, he picked up the fact that he had a gift that he could develop. And that this is how he wanted to contribute it, by watching. Children watch and see, and they do what they see. He became one of the world's great conductors all over the world, really, because of his aunt. Now, this is his aunt's memoir. My Lord, What a Morning, an autobiography by Marion Anderson. Now, this is interesting because, you know, you would say, James DePriest. And I'm saying, okay, James DePriest, let me go look. at. So I start digging around in these books. You know what the Egyptians say? That's what endures. The books is what endures, right? So I'm looking to see what does Marion Anderson have to say. So you got me rereading Marion Anderson and things I had forgotten. Watch this. This is his point. Because again, we'll be talking about how uh, with Ed Norton, you know, my father was a lawyer, federal prosecutor. I mean, it seems like these things are very intimate. The black community is even more intimate than the white one. James DePriest went to Central High School. His number was 202. Anybody from Philly, y'all know. Central High School, which is where Elaine Locke went to school, by the way. Elaine Locke from Philly. They don't go by what year they graduated. They go by what number their graduating class was. So every student I've ever known and had when I was in Philly working in the school district, even to this day, all my Philly people, they say, I went went to Central. What's your number? He said, oh, my number's 248. My number's 253. Okay. And what are you talking about? That's Central High School. Central High School is considered the top public high school in Philadelphia, girls high school, top high school for girls. I mean, these are the schools, simple, central and girls. We won't get into Masterman and all the other beef. I know some Philly people say, what about my school? Look, anyway, I know they wouldn't let me into central when I was at age. James DePriest went to central though. Who else went to central? Bill Cosby. Cosby, I think ends up in Germantown, but he and James DePriest were classmates. Now, remember the Cosby show Karen, do you remember who, remember the beginning, uh, the theme music of the original Cosby show? You remember who sang that? No, no, I don't remember. Yeah, but you, you, you probably do, but I'm, but I'm asking the question bad. It's a brother who always used his voice to make. Oh, Bobby Farron? 
Bobby McFerrin. Thank you. Okay. Of course. Yeah, of course. See, usually in moments like this, and we know this, we both know this as teachers, right? Sometimes when, when people can't answer questions because the teacher didn't ask the question the right way. So there it was right there. Bobby McFerrin, of course. Watch this. Page 294 of My Lord, What a Morning, the autobiography of Marion Anderson. She says she liked the song. She was studying. This is when she gets put on to the Metropolitan uh, Opera. She joins the Met. She said, and she's talking about the black people who she had seen, Mary Cardwell Dawson, a Negro woman who devoted her time to giving her own people a chance to perform an opera. She wrote to me a long time ago, inviting me to take part in some performances, but I happen to be quite occupied with concerts. I was sorry. I would have liked to do it. Some talented people have appeared with this company, including Robert McFerrin, the baritone, who became a member of the Metropolitan Opera the season I did. Robert McFerrin. Robert McFerrin is Bobby McFerrin's father. Robert, Robert McFerrin was a premier level opera singer. <laughs> you understand? A baritone, the same time as Marion Anderson. A lot of people don't know that. Not a lot of people do. But for the few people who don't know, when you hear Bobby McFerrin, understand he grew up in a household where his daddy was the man. Came a year after Marion Anderson to the Met. So that's the first iteration of the Cosby Show thing. Do you remember the second and final iteration? It wasn't lighthearted. Ba -ba -da, ba -ba -da. It was European classical music. Remember, you hear the brass. Doom, da -da 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 -da, and they all they come yes. dancing in. I hated it. <laughs> I hated it. Well, <laughs> a lot of people were like, what are you doing? I wonder now, Karen, because guess what? Bill Cosby got his classmate, James DePriest, to compose and record that thing. Okay. That's James DePriest's music. <laughs> and it's, wow. they, they classmates from Central High School. Let, so. me, let me just pop in. You know, I've, I've not been a student of classical or jazz. Um, and I have grown to understand that it is important for us, which is why I brought up James DePriest to you, um, and I said, you know, it's his birthday. Do you know him? Because a lot of us like, I don't like that kind of music. I don't, I don't get down with that. And a lot of us, I don't like Jeezy and, and Gucci Mane, which is why I wanted to start off there because we can't reject anything. We have to be able to find not just the gems and the jewels, but the breadcrumbs that lead us to, you know, some understanding and perspective that we don't currently have, because that's what the learning process is. So I am so you. Man, I got a book full of notes right now. Mary when I, I didn't even know the connection to Marian Anderson. No, no, because I mean, because but where, where would you find it though, Karen? Because again, this is why we have to have these moments. The archive is important. It's there for us. And the beautiful thing about it is, this is what, and I'm sure you've, discussed, you've had the same uh, experience many times. What we're talking about now, there's somebody in here, more than a couple of people who are saying, yeah, I knew that. But because we don't get a chance to interact with each other, we don't get a chance to exchange this. I promise you, in, in South Philly, if we were right now, we go to the bus stop and sit down and knock on the right door and sit down, we get all this history and the backstory to all the rest of it. But it's not at the University of Pennsylvania or Temple. It's not at Howard or Hampton or Tuskegee or Spelman. It's not at Stanford or the University of Chicago. It is in the living memory of the people who do the living and dying. And that's why we have to reframe the idea of the archive to include the living people. Cause that story, I mean, some people be like, "Oh yeah," but let me tell you the part you don't know. Let me tell you about it, and then be like, you sit back, and be like, "Damn, 
See, this ain't written nowhere. <laughs> and and the conductor, you know, um, you know, I just finished Tanahasi Coates's uh, The Water Dancer. Yes. And conduction in his book, conduction is the process through which special magical people can use conduction to set people free. That's so right. I, I just thought it was powerful that James uh, priest's birthday is today. Yes. Oh, no. Absolutely. And the conductor, you know, you, you think about the, you know, I don't know if Ta-Nehisi meant that musically to use that word conduction as a, as so. a pathway to freedom, but it was so powerful as it connects to what you're talking about today. Well, he's a wordsmith. And of course, he, I think, of course, he does. I mean, because, you know, the conductor is the is the is the is the element of transmission. In other words, a composer writes a piece, but the conductor is trying to convey the sense of what that writer was doing through other human beings who are using the instruments. So the conductor is like like it is an electronic circuit. It's the thing that allows the current to circulate the conductor. Right, the conductor, the Underground Railroad. You're going from here to here, but I am the means through which you transfer. Without me, if I'm not there, there is no link. So you conduct, absolutely. So if people think, oh, I could do that. No, you couldn't, because you don't even recognize, if you don't have, if you don't know what you're looking at, in fact, there's a book here, this is a book called The Black Composer Speaks. They did this, Indiana University did this a long time ago. Uh, let me give you the date, because um, this is not one of those books that you can probably find, 1978. But there's a brother here, George Theopolis, uh, George Theopolis Walker. Now, this is interesting. This brother out of D.C. went to Dunbar High School. I, I've been on a Dunbar kick. In fact, the high school students from Dunbar, um, Nubia Garima Rogers, is director of the Carter G. Woodson Institute for Black Studies. We talked about her this summer. They, they, they came to my Education in Black America class on Thursday. With Zoom now, everybody can come everywhere. So we had a good conversation about Dunbar. I love those kids. I really do, because Dunbar is the marquee name for high schools in Black America during the Jim Crow era in many ways. And the Dunbar High School, formerly M Street High School of Washington, was the gold standard. And so those young people are really reclaiming that legacy, going into that archive, connecting. So it's beautiful. But this brother went to Dunbar. He composed a piece that um, that James DePriest actually uh, uh, conducted. And that, and he's the only, this is the only time DePriest is mentioned in this book because it's about composers, but it's called Address for Orchestra in three movements. In 1971, uh, James DePriest conducted the, uh, the Belgian orchestra to perform this brother's piece. But to what you, what you just raised, we can't throw anything away. And we understand that skill acquisition and skill development in any form is a display of human possibility and human genius. And it's often just shaped by what you've been exposed to. So when you look at Dunbar, and I was tripping the kids out, I won't be able to put my hand on it now. I might be able, oh yeah, because I had it over here from this week. This is one of Dunbar's uh, high school yearbooks. These are incredibly rare. This is the Dunbar High School yearbook from 1941, Libra Adi. It was illustrated by famous black cartoonist, George Mercer. Y'all probably have seen his cartoons before. He he illustrated the high school uh, yearbook of Dunbar Senior High School in 1941. But when you see the addresses that these young people had, and they were telling the rest of the students in Education of Black America today these stories, and I'm like, wow. Black people would literally move from other places in the country to get to D.C. so their children could go to Dunbar. That's how Paul Robeson's uh, uh, cousin, Sadie Tanner, came down from Philly. Okay. Other black people didn't have no family in the, in the area. These children would be sent to Washington, D.C. They would get off the train or whatever they were traveling on, 
walk to the Dunbar High School neighborhood and knock on doors in this segregated neighborhood asking if somebody would take them in as a boarder so they could attend Dunbar. And so to see these young people in 2020, and I'm talking about children who these people in this, this these racists in this country would look at and say, oh, these black children, they went in failing inner city schools. To see these young people talk with pride about Dunbar graduates like Ernest Jest, Dunbar graduates like Sterling Brown, Dunbar graduates or faculty like Carter G. Woodson and Mary Church Terrell, Dunbar faculty or Dunbar students um, like Charles Richard Drew, they all went to Dunbar. You know what I'm saying? And in 2020, these young people saying, we're following in their footsteps. That's what remembering does. And so we need hip hop that translates all the names and all the people we're talking about now into this danceable form and this fire form. I want to hear that. I mean, people say, oh, do you listen to mumble rap? I listen to all of it, at least to be familiar with it. I wonder, can they make a mumble rap about Dunbar High School? And then I think to myself, but I wonder would the ancestors uh, that went to Dunbar be impressed by that? And I suspect they wouldn't. But <laughs> but but that's, that's the tension of generations. <laughs> and, you know, every generation has to learn from the previous generations and do its own thing. The test, finally, the test of whether or not the thing has achieved a certain level is whether it endures time back to the original point time 50 years from now 100 years from now what will you remember from this age and when people say you know Kendrick Lamar so I don't hear as much about Kendrick now as I did before he said when Kendrick Lamar was real hot they said oh, Kendrick Lamar is going to be remembered I said yeah y'all still listen to Lupe Fiasco oh, oh yeah yeah in my mind, Lupe, in many ways, was the was the Kendrick of a couple of years ago. Then I say, go, let's go up to the middle school, and ask them what they listened to. These things look like they're great until you start pulling the scope back and you realize, hmm. So the connections become important. Connection, conducting, the transmission from generation to generation. But I know, I know, we got question and answer, and we're gonna keep it under a tight two today. And I know we should spend a little time on connecting these yeah. movements. And before we get to the questions, and and you know, I, I knew Dunbar from sports. I used to cover sports at the, at the Daily News. I didn't know all of this academic stuff. And somebody in the comments said the same thing. Like, well, Dunbar, well, was, was it Dunbar, DC, or Dunbar, Baltimore, where Muggsy Bowles and them went? Oh, okay. Because Dunbar, Dunbar was the name of all the schools. There was a Dunbar Little Rock. There was a Dunbar Baltimore. There's a Dunbar in Richmond. So it might have been it well. One that was producing a lot of great basketball players. Yeah, Reg, Reggie. Uh, what's the boy name he played for? Played with Pat Ewing and them boys at Georgetown. Reggie. Uh, oh, I can't think of his name now. So somebody put it in the chat. They were out of Dunbar, Baltimore, which also, which also, however, has a significant academic tradition. See what happened was after segregation, a lot of those schools that, that were the champion intellectual schools, right? retaining their status of excellence, but the status became exclusively athletics. So, for example, I mean, um, oh, here's a great example. Um, Crispus Attics. Crispus Attics in Indianapolis. In fact, the building Crispus Attics now, it's my friend Marshariki Juwanza and worked for Indianapolis Public Schools for many years. It's now a museum. The, Indian, uh, the, the Crispus Attics School was known for athletics and academics. Then post-segregation, in fact, the greatest or the most recognized athlete to come out of Christmas Attics was the big O, Oscar Robinson. Uh, mm. Robinson, I go get his memoir. He talks about that. In fact, there's a book on Christmas Attics during that period. In fact, um, you know how white folk do. They wait till everybody forget, then they make a movie and rewrite the history. Don't be watching Hoosiers 
Like, that's what happened. You know what I'm saying? Because Christmas Addicts was out there spanking. You understand what I'm saying? You don't have, you have an integrated tournament. Addicts going to beat every white team. So the idea that Gene Hackman and them came out of a barn and beat up all the black team, everybody calm down. Addicts happened in real life. It's like Rocky. You can't beat nobody in the ring, so you just wait a minute and then make up a movie where you're a hero. Now, of course, they pulled it back into Creed, thank God, but a little bit closer to reality. But what happens is Dunbar the same way. If people now in D.C., if they know Dunbar at all, maybe because their, their football team was good, or, and what those young people are doing now is reclaiming the academic side. Last thing I'll say about it, Paul Robeson is not an outlier in this sense. If you were a quality athlete, you were also expected to be a quality student. So when you look at the history of black athletics, black what these called schoolboy and schoolgirl athletics in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, even when I was coming through high school in Nashville, the Nashville Interscholastic League, I played baseball, you know, they 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 would call us schoolboys. In other words, but the idea was scholar athlete meant something. If you were a top athlete, you it wasn't at the expense of your studies. You were expected to be in the arc of a Robeson. In the arc of a, of a uh, let me think of a good sister who can come right quick. I don't know if I have anything around here I could pull quickly to give you the example, but uh, oh, mm, Lucy Diggs Slow, the first black woman who was a tennis champion in the United States in the Negro tennis circuit. Lucy Diggs Slow, one of the founders of Alpha Kappa Alpha. Lucy Diggs Slow, uh, the dean of women at Howard University. Lucy Diggs Slow was a champion athlete and a champion administrator and a champion scholar, all those things at once fighting back against patriarchy in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. I mean, you know, you were expected. You were expected to be both. And this this, this, new, this new phenomena of do as little as school as possible as long as you can dribble that rock. Yeah, that's white supremacy that has shattered the idea that you must be excellent across the board. And so, yeah, Dunbar is known, especially Dunbar, Baltimore. I just got a text from Clay Kane, who uh, has a radio show on Sirius XM right before mine. And he said he's in the barbershop and they are literally talking about us. They're talking about you right oh, now. No, they're talking about us. Yeah, he's from Philly. He's from Philly. Much respect. That's the real classroom. It, it, yeah. Any mistake? What did Richard Pryor say about the classroom? I mean, about the barbershop, Richard Pryor said, you know, my daddy would go to the barbershop and wait for somebody to make a mistake. 19 what? 19 what? No, 1930. Get in your car. Follow me to my house. I got the book at my house. He said, you don't want to go in the barbershop and misstate a fact. He said, my daddy was sitting there all day and wait for somebody to make a mistake. Shout out to Clay. Bro. Tell him, that's, that's the number one audience. <laughs> if Love we make it in the barbershop, then we good. <laughs> all right. So let's 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 break down one, one of the 10 points in yeah. the March, and then we'll get to our questions. We got uh, folk ready to come in. I'm, I'm really excited because I, you know, it's random. Like, you know, I literally pick from my DMs. I don't know the people personally. And uh, and it was amazing last week. So I'm looking forward to it okay. happening again. All right. Okay. So, so let me let me let me do one right quick. And while we're doing it, I'm thinking somebody in the chat probably told us who that brother yeah, was. Yeah, Reggie Williams. It was Reggie, Reggie Williams. Williams. Yes. There it is. <laughs> this is a class of Yes, Reggie Williams. That's right. For the day. Shout out to the late John Thompson who recently made transition, who had those Georgetown students, had those Georgetown ball players with the Georgetown uniforms and had the kente around the collar, real lightweight, just letting you know, yeah, we black over here. We're letting y'all know. Um, yes. Um, so, the, so, so from last week, as we know, 
we were talking about the 1943 March on Washington movement. And I actually, between last week and this one, was able to move around some books and found a copy of, this is uh, Winning the War for Democracy, David Lecander. I mentioned it, the March on, March on Washington movement, 1941 to 1946. Uh, the first book though, this is a book came out in 2014. The first book on it is uh, When Negroes March, Garfinkel. That's the, that's, that's the, that's the book. I like, uh, you know, the books by scholars now are a lot more detail in terms of archival work but the older books in my in my mind have a different value and in this vein they're superior to these newer books they're they're often eyewitness testimony and that's where i want to uh spend just a second on the 43 and then the bridge to 63 very quickly and look at one as you say one one value and setting the framework maybe for next week or whenever i'd love for us to do and i mentioned her last week but I'd love for us to spend a whole session on this sister, Anna Arnold Hedgeman. Anna Hedgeman, who was the only woman, as we talked about last week, on the 1963 March on Washington, and she tells the story of how it went down in her, she wrote two memoirs. This is her memoir, The Trumpet Sounds, a memoir of Negro leadership, Anna Arnold Hedgeman, out of Minnesota. Do you have a picture of her in here? Yeah, there she is as an elder. Memoir of Negro leadership by Anna, this sister right here, yo. She should be a household name before. I, I can almost like Martin Luther King or Roy Wilkinson, any of them, A. Philip Randolph. It's not like you couldn't take them out and put her in. In fact, she compares favorably to all of them. In this book, she tells the story of how A. Philip Randolph came up with the idea for the 63 March. They were in Harlem. Oh, give me a second, Karen. I know we got a question now. We're not going to go deep into this because we need to spend a lot of time with her. Uh, she was born and raised in Minnesota. Her father's in South Carolina. She ends up at Hamline College because he's a deeply devoted Christian. And she goes to this Christian school in St. Paul, Minnesota. And through the alchemy of the time, she ends up at graduating with a degree. And she says she wants to teach. She ends up going to Russ College. She's at Russ College to teach for two years. She's in Holly Springs, Mississippi teaching. That's when she hits Jim Crow the first time. Her She reports among others, to an administrator named Farmer, James Farmer, the father of James Farmer, the civil rights leader. In fact, anybody seen the movie The Great Debaters, that's the character being played by Forrest Whitaker. Anna Hedgeman works for him as a teacher at Russ College. She ends up being one of the most important civil rights leaders, organizers of the entire civil rights movement, 19th or 20th centuries. And in page after page, in fact, she says, in the fall of 1962, A. Philip Randolph called a meeting in Harlem, said, we got to do something about these hospital workers not getting paid. These black workers not getting paid, same as the white ones. He calls a meeting of all the black leaders and, and, and the Puerto Ricans. He says, I'm calling everybody, the Muslims, the nationalists. He says, it scares off a lot of the black preachers because he didn't invite Malcolm X and them to the damn meeting. They're like, well, he's always critical of us. Randolph is like, we ain't going to get nothing done if we don't all come together. So in 2020, we're thinking, we, how do we build unity? First thing you do back is go back and say, what happened the last time you tried to do it? And when they did it this time, they got the rate, the wages. Then in February 63, he brings them back together and says, we need to talk about the national economic picture. They mapped this whole strategy out. And at the end of the meeting, he says, I'm calling for a march on Washington for job opportunities to be held in October of this year, 1963. Word gets back to Anna Hedgeman that Martin King has said he wants a march on Washington to pass the Civil Rights Act in 19, uh, of 1964. He wants a march in August of 63. By the way, 
this is a great book to talk about the policy implications of how that legislation got passed called the Civil Rights Commission, 1957 to 1965, Foster Ray Dulles. I like books like this because what Dulles is doing is chronicling how from 1957, he's chronicling how this Civil Rights Commission, which comes, Eisenhower names it, in the wake of this pressure that Randolph and Hegeman and them are going from the outside, and the internal pressure, in addition to the Cold War, forcing the federal government to begin to respond again. All of these things have a role. It's not either or. I ain't voting. I'm not going. No, 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 no. You know what? Rather than getting to arguing people, go back and read about how all these forces work in. Because April Randolph and Anna Hedgeman are not elected politicians. They are they are outside organizers. Also with Bayard Rustin, which we'll have to talk about Bayard. This is the Quaker's book on Bayard Rustin. There's a number of books on Bayard Rustin. I like this little book, Bayard Rustin, The Invisible Activist, because Activist, it's published by the Quakers. And, and he talks about how he played a role in this a major role. Anyway, long story short, getting to the point. Anna Hedgeman reaches out to Martin Luther King and she says, I went to talk to Dr. King. In fact, I, in fact, I went to talk to Mr. Randolph and I told Randolph, you and King need to talk. Then I got with Martin Luther King's brother and King and Randolph agreed to merge the marches. And that's where the name of the March on Washington in 1963 came from, which is the March for Jobs and Freedom. The freedom side was really developed out of pushing for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is what King was marching for. The economic side was April Randolph, Anna Hedgeman and them who had started that momentum in 43 with the march on Washington. They shut down, well, 41 really. And then 43, the Fair Employment Practices Committee meeting and then forcing the government to eventually appoint a Civil Rights Commission and then monitoring that, oh, there's some stories of some man the Civil Rights Commission used to go around the country. Still did. I mean, you read Mary Frances Berry's book about the Civil Rights Commission. She was the, the, the chairman of it for years. One of the things they would do is go around the country and have hearings. So you see, they eventually got to Mississippi. There's all these hearings, these clashes. It's fascinating. In fact, we had to do one on, this, on the, uh, the the Civil Rights Commission. But Randolph, and, and well, actually, let me, let me let me give let me look at the demands. We, we talked about the demands from '43. Uh, 41, the March on Washington movement. We talked about those last week. Here are the demands. Here, this is in the Bayard Rustin book. This is a copy of the program from 1960, uh, the March on Washington, 1963. You see what we demand. This is what Bayard Rustin read from the podium of the March on Washington after King finishes. There are 10. They want a minimum wage for everybody. They want everybody in the country who can work to have a job. They want a massive federal program to train and place all unemployed workers, white and black, in meaningful and dignified jobs. They want a new executive order uh, banning discrimination in housing. That ends up being the Fair Housing Act, good or bad. Uh, desegregation of all school districts in 1963. They said they tired of waiting since Brown. All this is what they're demanding, but what you see is that, and this is where I'll end with this, because we could have picked any one of those, but I'm going to go to this one. After the march in 63, when you see the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 64, because remember, Kennedy gets killed in 63, and Johnson, who is pivotal in getting the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which authorizes, among other things, the Civil Rights Commission, the first piece of civil rights legislation passed since Reconstruction, Johnson, as president, is able to bully the Senate, which has been the obstructionist element, 
to get them to flip enough to get the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed. We're looking at 2020 saying Mitch McConnell's not going to do anything. Now, he probably isn't going to do anything. But if you read the history, you understand how you can begin to crack that nut. You can't crack it just by sitting here and drawing up a plan from scratch as if you've never had any experience with obstructionists before. Because these cats like Strom Thurmond and them was like, oh, hell that. we ain't never going to do that. You have to read about what we did before and how we work inside and outside. People say, well, Malcolm would never have. Malcolm is invited to the meeting with the Muslims that A. Philip Randolph calls in 62 to plot what becomes in 63, the proposal for the march that ends up in August. Don't act like these people didn't know each other. And Malcolm and Adam Clayton Powell were like this. We can talk about Powell in a minute, because actually on the way there, I actually pulled Adam by Adam. I don't, we're not going to have a chance to talk about it, but maybe next week if we get deep into the Anna Hedgman, we'll get into what Adam Clayton Powell thought about it. Here's, this here's the good but, news. We're here every Saturday. We got, we we got, got a long time. Anyway, I'll end with this. Adam Clayton Powell, I'm sorry, A. Philip Randolph is old. Anna Hedgman, I mean, she has smoke for all these dudes. She's the one that says, ain't no women speaking. I think all the women's groups should be up here. I mean, it's all in when the trumpet sounds. We got, and then this one here, oh my God, this is her second memoir, The Gift of Chaos, Decades of American Discontent. This should be mandatory reading for any activist, any activist talking about organizing Black people should start with Anna Arnold Hedgman's The Gift of Chaos, 1977. Because, I mean... Otherwise, why are you repeating stuff that we should know about? Anyway, Randolph turns this over to the next generation. Bayard Rustin is kind of like his, his conduit, so to speak. And Bayard Rustin, in many ways, along with Anna Hedgeman, they're the conductors of the March on Washington. Then Randolph, near the end of his life, or near the end of his active life, and Bayard Rustin starts something called the A. Philip Randolph Institute. This is from January 1967. It's called A Freedom Budget for All Americans. It is published by the A. Philip Randolph Institute, January 1967. Randolph ties it together to everything he has been doing since he started the Brotherhood of Sleeper Car Porters in 1925. And then who writes the foreword? Martin Luther King, not a year and a half before he's assassinated, saying, I believe in this freedom budget. And then, they got seven basic objectives, full employment. Let's just stop with full employment because the rest of the pamphlet is talking about how you can have full employment without going up on all the taxes, where you'll get it to grow the economy, where the money will come from. And in case you didn't understand where it was coming from, we're going to have questions, frequently asked questions and answers with the freedom budget. Full employment for them. You know what that meant? Full employment meant Everybody in the country has a job at a living wage. And if you don't have a job, it's because you can't work or you shouldn't work. You're injured or whatever. And you get support so that you live your life with dignity. It is, it is a literal reimagining of the nature of this society. So people saying we got to defund the police. We got to move these. Things. Yeah, well, they're going to put, oh, everybody slow down. Y'all love Martin Luther King, don't you? Yeah, and Dr. King, when you, you don't, first of all, you don't know what Dr. King, read the forward Martin Luther King wrote, because if you, it's here. Y'all gonna give us Dr. King back. You gonna give us Ella Baker back. You ain't gonna quote Ella Baker, Joe Biden in your acceptance speech for a quote and then keep moving. Nah, Ella Joe Baker all through these pages. And we gonna put Anna Hedgeman in your face. Why? Because what y'all gonna stop doing finally is cutting out 
three or four lines from here to there, splicing together the people who helped organize our people and telling our young people who then go out in the street and think you got to pick between these things that they have to pick and that it all comes back to your structure. That has never been true in the history of our long liberation struggle. And we have the documents to prove it. So we, 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 maybe we talk about Anna Hedgeman next week, because I promise you, everybody in the 20th century she knew or worked with or had smoke for or all three. So <laughs> we can stop with that then. Oh. Nope, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. All right. Yes. Okay, we're going to welcome in our, our questioners. <laughs> and we have a lot of questions in the, in the uh, comments as well. And guys, if you follow me on Twitter, um, and just say you want to be a part of it. I'll, I'll pick three to five every week. And I'm going to start, I'm going to get back on Twitter with, with five. I've been spotty now because we're at the end of the semester and they've been wearing me out. This, I don't know Listen. how, Karen, I don't know how you managing with this online. Easy. But, Let me tell you how. All right. I'm going to give you an insight. This is, uh, these are un, uh, undocumented times. These are historic times. And I decided this semester that I was going to teach in a way that was stress-free for me, for me and the, and the students. So we, we, we come in, we have conversation. I'm not doing a lot of tests. For what? You know, there aren't a whole lot of assignment. For but what? You, but, but you meet with them though, right? Oh, oh, no, 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 because it's important. And for them, what I found last, last semester during the height of the pandemic, I left the, the, the Zoom one day and didn't realize that I didn't kick them out. Those kids stayed in there two hours after I left because yeah. they, they, they didn't have community. This was the place that they felt safe. Yes. And that they had connection to one another. So what I decided to do this semester was to build that community from day one so that this would be a safe haven for them, a good landing spot. We start off getting a mental health check. A lot of the kids, um, one kid, uh, their dad died from COVID, you know, so we, you know, we're there commiserating with one another. And, you know, one kid thought he had COVID. You know, I have a kid in Turkey. I have a kid in South Korea, you know, so it's a way of bonding. And what is education? You know, we're in these times, but we're, we're having conversations about what's happening, much like this class on Saturday, I do it on Thursday and Friday, because what degree can they get? What what set of tests can I give them that's going to prepare them for the world that they're that's waiting for them, those who are graduating? So agree, agree wholeheartedly. Thank you for that. We, yeah. and thank you, because yeah. that that's what we should all be doing. I appreciate yeah. you. I mean, I think it's, for me, it's just the sheer volume. I think we got 15 yeah, you got, in our freshman <laughs> seminar and I got four other classes. And Listen, <laughs> you are a an amazing G for for the class. The class load, when you told me how many kids you, I was like, I don't even know how you grade the pay. I don't well, even know. Trust me. Trust so, me. This is so. this is it. We are we are moving. Y'all know we are moving in a different direction. We're not going back to the way it was. This, this is the future. No, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that, Karen. This is the present. This is, this is the present. We're building it now because that type of effort, I mean, I was looking, man, between just the three undergraduate classes, it's like 25 maybe separate class sessions and all of them are synchronous. I got Pat stacked up and I'm like, this is, okay, we got to rethink this. this. For me, this is the most important teaching work that, that, that I'm participating in right now is this conversation and, it, and because of what you're saying if cats in the barbershop talking about us come then, on <laughs> so don't worry about twitter i got that i got that you don't need another okay. thing okay. i'll take that off and well, let's, let's see who's uh, here who's yeah let's go let's add uh let's add miss rachel into 
Hey, Rachel. Hey, everybody, since the brother last week. Hey. Hey. I love it. <laughs> yes, uh, shout out to, uh, yes, Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, shout out to. Uh, oh, wait, I'm sorry, Rachel. My bad, my no, bad, my bad. I'm just trying to remove myself from the. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, he he essentially uh inspired uh me and my husband to come out and show another historical landmark. Uh, since we are from Jackson, Mississippi, so we are at the home of Medgar Evers. Um, hey, bro. There. And this is and that's my husband. <laughs> I couldn't come on here on, without without uh um having him because he introduced me to y'all's uh, YouTube channel and. I was hooked, so there's no way I could come on here and ask my question without having my husband with me, Jake. Yes, I, don't know, I don't know what kind of question you have, but I promise this. Do you do you all mind helping us understand the significance of that yard you're standing in right now? I've been there myself, but I tell you, to hear it from you, this is a true treat. It, Please help us. Um. Well, it's, I mean, it's almost kind of surreal to know that something that was such a huge and I mean significant uh, moment and part in history, individual, much larger than themselves, you know, is right here in our city. Like, you know, where I grew up, I work, I live, and to kind of hear, you know, my parents talk about it, you know, other um, people from that time, like, it's, it's, it just shows how it's not that far removed, <laughs> how, um, you know, everybody wants to make it seem like it happened so long ago, so we're supposed to get over it. But mm -hmm. I mean, we have people who are still living, who were here, you know, um, during when everything was going on. It, it, it just kind of blows my mind. But I mean, the significance is like, just knowing this is where he lived. I mean, this is where he was, you know, taken from this earth. And I mean, it's, mm. it's, mm. it's just crazy mm. to be able to easily just come and experience and be in, you know, such a, I mean, a huge part of history. So, which is great that I'm, you know, so happy to know and hear that it is now, you know, national monument and, you know, historical landmark. And yeah, I just definitely, we got a lot going on with Mississippi, but we got our, yeah, yeah, we got our gym. So Mississippi I, I is like the future. We wanted to make sure we just, you know, showed y'all a piece. <laughs> Listen, um, thank, thank, but, uh, thank you for that. Mississippi is the future. Yes, my my man Chokwe Lumumba, <laughs> the former mayor, his son, I know is there now, Antar. Chokwe Lumumba, his daddy, that was my man. Chokwe Lumumba was the man. His son and them, I know y'all working it out down there. Mississippi is the future. Trust me. That's where you, this going to go down in Mississippi. So what's on your mind? I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. That gives me further reassurance because uh, it's it's tough. <laughs> I mean, oh, it, it's sure. oh, yeah. tough down here. But, um, that that's part of uh, so my question is uh you you know I follow all of y'all you know you and Professor Terrence Hunter and yourself and you know on this platform and I mean just the wealth of knowledge I'm so uh, I try not to like harbor on the past I'm like why 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 didn't I have this in my school years like why didn't I have these kind of professors or teachers like it's just uh so I'm, I mean you know we're hopeful and and pray that you know whenever we have kids that they are able to you know, have mentors and teachers like the both of you to just this wealth of knowledge to, to share the good, the bad, the ugly of all, you know, because it's all important. So um, I saw that you had retweeted um, 
uh, a tweet from the Zen the Zen Ed project, which yes. you know the reason it caught my eye because there was like Mississippi governor. I was like, oh goodness, what what is this? <laughs> What's going on? So I tapped on it and I was like, I was blown away. I had no was one. I decided to say my first time really kind of hearing about the Zen Ed project, and I just kind of went down a rabbit hole and reading up on what our governor is trying to propose the the patriotic um was uh the patriotic education fund uh yes. putting three million dollars towards that um yes. and pretty much just to give everybody a little quick note of what that is um it is to funding to help declare that the united states is the greatest country in the history of the world and promises to reward schools that combat the revisionist history that is poisoning a generation um and it's argued against that it's for far left socialists teachings that emphasize America's shortcomings and demands that the curriculum instead focus on the incredible accomplishment of the American way. I don't know about you, but I don't, that doesn't sound like the history I'm, I'm privy to. So it's this whole censorship, which I think goes to a bigger picture and also kind of connects to being here with on the, you know, the home of Medgar Evers who fought for segregation and, and applied to Mississippi Law School, but was denied. And, right. and here we have in the schools, like, the government is trying to kind of like um, wash away and, and censor like the bad, ugly side of it. Like that's no, it, it just goes to the bigger picture. It's frustrating. And I know um, because I know y'all talk about uh, Michael Harry and how his mother, you know, taught yes. them at home and made sure they got the education, which I do agree. That's very important. But for public education, our, our tax dollars, I mean, we're, it goes yes. towards that. Why, why can't we get why can't it be all history like why can't we get that why does it why does the especially black history have to be such a like small part oh we we get february in schools that's enough like we know we're only going to highlight the the good like no let's get it all so what my question well, is what should we do what can we do well, to ensure that we get all that in our in our public education thank well, you Rachel, Rachel, I, I say this very quickly we all start where we are and in your case, and you and your husband's case, and thank you all, my God, this really, man, they moving us, Karen. You can start literally where you are. That pro <laughs> Embrace what the governor did. You know why? Because that means we're winning. Anytime you got to go out and do something like that, he's doing, if you go back to the 1950s with the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, that's what they were doing. That's what they were doing. And there in Jackson, um, this sister, we talked about her early on. This is the history of the Mississippi Teachers Association by Cleopatra Davenport Thompson. Remember we talked about her, Karen? She was the dean of the School of Education and Technical Studies at Jackson State College right there down the street from where you are. The Zen Ed program in connection with SNCC, veterans of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, of course, a lot of people came out of Jackson. They meet it, they met at Tougaloo. Tougaloo, right down the street from Mega Evers, right where, right from where you all you all are standing. I would say start where you are with the deep tradition of educating our people that comes out of Jackson, Mississippi, comes out of the state of Mississippi. And the first thing young people, particularly from where, and this goes for everybody, but I'm focusing on Mississippi because Rachel and her husband really have, man, y'all moved me. Mm. I spent a lot of time in Holly Springs, Mississippi, for example, where West College is, and um, Jackson, Mississippi, Tuvalu, Jackson State. The deep traditions of educating for liberation are to be found in those black schools in places like Jackson, Mississippi, in the black churches, 
in the black organizations. And I think finally a good project for young people, just to begin it, and then we all work together, is to get young people to start collecting the oral histories of the elders in that community. And I'm just saying that not as a suggestion. It hasn't been suggested before. I already know that that's already being done in Jackson. So now it's just a question of finding out who's doing it and really blowing it up. When you see a proclamation like that, they scared. And we're gonna run over them like water, like like water, like a fountain for a mighty stream. But there ain't no need to meet nobody in the street with our fist balled up at this point. Just get them babies to sit around the elders with a tape recorder or somebody working the iPhone, which they do better than all of us, and say, Grandma, do you know the name Mega Everest? Well, let me tell you something about Mega Everest. And just get and then let them make a little documentary. And bit by bit, it's gonna be a different generation of young people remembering. Man, Karen, Karen, they were in Jackson. Facts. Oh, you know, I did a tour by accident. I told you that. Um, and it was life changing when you can put your finger in the hole of the bullet that came through that front oh. window where his children usually sat. They, they, everybody in that house could have been murdered. You know, the bullet that hit him in the driveway oh my God. and went through the house, you know, from the coward several blocks away. Pump, pump. At, look, yeah. Karen, one of the most brilliant and tragic photographs I've ever seen in my life is the photograph at the funeral of Mega Everest when Merle has her hand on her son's back and that boy is looking forward with the most most heartbreaking look of grief on his face with his father having been destroyed. We will never, ever forget. And some people say they never forgive. I'm one of those people. I ain't forgiving none of y'all. That's why I do this work. <laughs> anyway, get ready because we're gonna move on up over you. Yes, we are. Uh, and I was waiting for the day that you would uh have a uh stack of books tumble, and that happened. No, 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 I pushed them aside. So okay, okay, by the way, when I pushed them, I actually came up with the book on Lucy Diggs Slow. Okay, this is the okay. book on Lu the life of Lucy Diggs, Slow, faithful to the task at hand. That's by sister Car uh, Carol Miller and Ann Pruitt Logan. She's the sister who finished the job. Uh, Carol Miller passed away and Ann Pruitt Logan finished it. This sister right here, if you notice the name Serena Williams, this is the Serena Williams before there was a Serena Williams or a Zena Garrison. She's the first black tennis champion and she was the Dean of Women. Oh, by the way, guess who worked under her for a year at Howard? Anna Arnold Hedgeman. I'm telling you, this is the one right here. <laughs> so, anyway, we should go to the right, next. Let's, let's welcome in Miss Tish. Hey, Tish. Tish, hey. Uh, Tish is from, and I didn't, uh, well, I didn't have to tell you where, where Rachel was from because she brought you right there. Uh, but I think Tish is from Durham, North, North Carolina. Durham, North Carolina. Durham. Welcome, welcome. Okay. Thank you so much, Karen Hunter and Dr. Greg Carr. You all are just amazing. And um, just being invited to, to ask some questions is just truly a blessing. So to kind of ask and piggyback on what Miss Rachel uh, said, I wanted to know, um, you talked about a universal knowledge that we should all be tapping into. Mm -hmm. And obviously knowledge is power and, and, and by reading. I'm wondering in order to teach the into, intellectual work of so many of these authors, and 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 great thought leaders that that you talk about every single week that we have this class would it be helpful for us as a people as a collective to kind of come up with a national list of uh, must read books starting you know k through 
K through 12, and then even further for the parents, because you talk about having the books in your home and sitting around the elders, but a lot of families don't know where to start. That's right. So if you, I mean, there, I can't tell you how many books I've purchased just from listening to Karen <laughs> Hunter. And I mean, and I've written down a list today. I'm like, okay, I got to get this. I got to get that. So it's important that we publicize maybe like a list of for every, you know, if it's activism, if it's black history, if it's sports, like you just talked about, you know, the Dean of Students who was a tennis player. Yes. There's so much information and there's so many things that I think we we can tap into, but a lot of people just don't know where to start. Well, um, let me jump in. Um, please, I saw the Global Majority shirt. Too. Yeah, how you, you know? How you know, Dr. Carr? How you know? Look at her weapon, the Global Majority. I'm saying. Look at that. And, and y'all can get that T-shirt, uh, and you just go down and just click on the T-shirt. Please. Um, I had to wear it. Love you for that. Um, you know, this is some of the work that when we started, you know, Dr. Carr and I, we were talking about, you know, doing a book club in 2021, which we're definitely doing. But also, how do we, how do we, you know, because there has to be steps to this, you know, and that's yes. the work that we talk about. Yes. And I, I don't want to start from scratch because there's somebody out there that's already done the work. So I'm, I'm putting out a clarion call, you know, yes. and what I, what I love about what we're doing here is that it is truly a collective. We've had people come in to pitch in to do things, right. you know, and Carr and I were like, where did this come from? Okay. Right. Because you're going to see the, the, the holes and the gaps and you got to fill it. You know, we can't do this alone. Right. We don't want to. So, you know, cars, of course, going to drive the bus. You know, he's going to be the conductor. Be We're on the bus. We're going to rotate drive. Because Karen, because Karen, I don't know. Karen, uh, Tish, let's go. You from Durham? I am actually from California. I moved to Durham in 2011. Oh, perfect. That you, but you, but you know, then, um, in fact, I don't want, I'll resist the urge to go over here and look for my book on Haiti, of course, Durham. Yes. And the black community. Yes. And last week when we were talking about what the Negro wants, I think yes. I may have mentioned Gordon Blaine Hancock. I don't know if you've heard that name before. Gordon Hancock is uh, came out of Virginia Union. Mm -hmm. He was part of what they call the Durham Manifesto, where they wow. had the whole this whole platform for independent institution building coming out of Durham, yes. North Carolina. I guess I, I, I say that by way of, of saying this. As Karen said, I think the best way, well, I'm going to say the best way. And one effective way of us building this kind of master list mm -hmm. is that everywhere each of us is, we identify what are the key sources about the place we're in. Right, right. Durham is a central place for us to need to be, need to be able to study. There's a lot of people in here this conversation right now say, Haiti, I thought that's a country. No, right. Haiti was also a, a, a place in Durham. They <laughs> you know they we need that piece from you. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. so as we contribute to this master list, we can then begin to sift out, compare, contrast, things move up or down, get put into categories or themes. And what we've developed then is a curriculum for study that there'll be some pieces we all do. Miseducation of the Negro, uh, Crusader for Justice, you know, Carter Woodson, Ida B. Wells. There'll be some African pieces, Sundiata. I would suggest the teachings of Tahotep, uh, who's mentioned in that piece I've mentioned, uh, one of the ancient Egyptian texts. Um, we, in other words, there are some capstone pieces we could all put together to drive from, but the power of a curriculum, two things now, finally, Tish, the power of curriculum comes from, it seems to me, the local stories where we are, because what we find is we all these stories are everywhere, and we, we go out and curate and see where we contribute to this larger piece. That's one thing. The second thing is, 
curriculum is 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 often driven by the right questions and that's why we created that philadelphia question with those six curriculum with those six key categories of question who are these people to other people black people who are these black people to each other what ways of knowing do they have what science and technology did they develop what ways of passing on memory did they create and in each of their moments and generations what music art dance culture did they create if you ask those six questions and get young people to be our legs all of us contribute of course we then begin to fill that curriculum up and that also also finally bypasses the idea that these folks who are part of a tiny group who can help too everybody can help but we move the authority from these institutions whose survival is based on continuing to be looked at as the only people can do it we move the authority from them to where it should be which is to all of us that's what we're talking about jailbreaking but yeah let's start we can start with haiti and we can start with durham we can start with gordon blaine hancock right there and there's a lot of stuff out there on all of them and this is the work we're starting to do now because this is this is the best work to be done Okay, that's uh, yeah. Thank you, Tish. Thank you, Tish, for your question. Yes, thank you, Tish. Brother Gary, Mr. Gary from Oswego, Illinois. Oswego. Yes, uh, I am. Uh, I'm representing Chicago. Um, <laughs> I'm. I'm. I. Uh, I'm 62. I have no. I have no qualms about about saying my age. But first of all, good afternoon, Miss Karen Hunter. Good afternoon, Professor Carr. Oh, pleasure, and, pleasure, brother. And I have to, I have to give a shout out to my wife Helen, because if it wasn't for her coming in from work every day last year, saying, "Oh, you gotta, you gotta listen to what Karen's, what what they said on Karen Hunter's show," you gotta. So now with COVID, she's a nurse and she does care coordination at home, and I I get to hear Sirius XM Urban View. And and Sister Hunter's show is I, I I I truly respect what she does because there are so many voices that are going on right now throughout Black America, and I don't say the Black community, I say Black America because from coast to coast, from border to border, we're all going through the same thing. Yes. And as I said, I represent Chicago and and it, I don't think it is uh, a mistake that I'm on that Rachel was on from Mississippi first, because when you look at Chicago, you see Mississippi. When you see Mississippi, you see <laughs> Chicago and yes, Detroit. Sir. Yes, sir. And you see the hit that was put out on Mississippi on that also affected Chicago. They ran us up here and it, it was, you know, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying, but I want to know, well, here's my question. Um, looking at Mississippi, mm -hmm. looking at the fact that we don't, we, that, we, that, that state has the largest percentage of, of us. That's we, the most 37% of Mississippi is black. Sure. Why have we abandoned Mississippi? I don't have a good answer to that, brother. I mean, I, I would ask you, first of all, I don't know that we have. I think we're right. We're on the verge. We're always on the verge, though, in some ways, Gary. You know, it's better than I do, brother. Um, we're always on the verge of tapping into our potential. W.E.B. Du Bois actually, in a, 
in the education of black people in the first piece in here. Mm -hmm. uh, he gives a speech at Hampton in 1906. It's called The Hampton Idea. There it is right there, The, mm -hmm. the Hampton Idea. And he's saying that he says there's a great fear in America. The, he said, well, he starts, he says, there's a great lack in black America. He says, the great lack is we have not maximized our ability to tap into the energy that allowed us to create human civilization. We haven't done it on this side because, you know, we were obviously brought here to labor. And so there's this, there's this lack. And he said, our cultures were not cultures that were based on this frantic, frenetic, push grind and that's no that's no disrespect to cats like now you know my man nick cannon you know he's finishing this doctor this sebi documentary for his man nipsey hustle the whole question of hustling grind the grind chase the bag du bois is like that wasn't the cultures we brought from africa he says first of all we came from tropical environments and semi-tropical environments and arid environments if you do like that you'll be dead and we built pyramids we built whole societies we created uh, uh mathematics and writing we didn't we weren't lazy but you move at a different pace when you're in there. So you bring us into this environment and we have learned this pace, but what we haven't quite figured out is how to connect our deeper cultural ways of moving through the world to this pace. He said, but we will do it. And that leads to the point you're, you're raising, I think, the great fear. Du Bois then tells his audience at Hampton, he says, you know what the great fear is? The great fear in this country is when we do that because it's going to change everything. Mississippi, as you say, might as well say four out of every 10 people in the state of Mississippi is a person of African descent. And we look at birth rates, we look at mortality rates, we look at demographics, that number's only getting larger. Mississippi should be honeycombed with statewide black elected leaders. It's certainly honeycombed with local elected leaders, and that's just political. But the organizing power of Mississippi, which is why when the young people in SNCC went into Mississippi, and, you know, decided in 1964, let us get into Mississippi and basically get out of the way of these local leaders like Fannie Lou Hamer and Annie Devine, um, Vernon Dahmer and all the great people who came out. I mean, we just saw uh, Rachel, her husband there in Jackson, Mississippi, Mega Wiley Evers, of course, his brother Charles Evers, who just made transition. You know, it's the local people to use the, the title of a book John Dittmer did of oral histories among uh, the people there. When you tap into the local folk and get out of their way, what you see is we begin to blossom. I think that we're on the verge of reconnecting to that wisdom. It simply requires us to take some time to study what we've done, to connect what we've done to what we are capable of doing and to help remind us that we are on the verge. I'll end with this in terms of Mississippi and just in a political sense. Um, the recent Senate election, and this is a this isn't about organizing and local movements, this kind of thing. Remember, we talked about the difference between organizing and and and, and, and mobilizing voters. But you know, Mississippi was has been abandoned by folks who don't who think who have an agenda that's different than the agenda we have. The National Democratic Party in this country, for example, could have sent Mike Espy to the United States Senate in this recent uh, election. Cindy Hyde Smith, the littlest rebel, as I call her. Um, you know, her sister is now, her, her cultural sister is now running for re-election in Georgia, Kelly Loeffler. But Cindy Hyde Smith should not have been re-elected in my mind if the Democratic Party had had the good sense to invest in what has already been going on in Mississippi unbroken for decades 
in terms of local infrastructure of people who are organizing for a better way of life for people in these localities in Mississippi, it could have turned people out if they could have made the connection as to why this will benefit our local organizing. But the Democratic Party nationally looks and says, we have another agenda. We want to maintain power. We got these corporate interests. We got these lobbying interests. So guess what? It's time for us to treat them the way politicians should be treated, as tools. So in between elections, we should be doing the real work of organizing. And Mississippi has as long a tradition of that work as anywhere. And there's a lot of uh, good stuff out there to read and discuss and to think about, which will point us to how Mississippi can in many ways lead the way. And I would suggest, among other places, looking at Jackson, looking at Jackson Rising, looking at the Malcolm X grassroots, Malcolm X grassroots movement and things that are going on in Jackson, looking at the administration of Chokwe Antar Lumumba, his sister Rakia went to Howard Law School and all those who are there trying to reimagine what government looks like in the tradition of their parents, Nubia and Chokwe, the Republic of New Africa, who said we're moving from places like Detroit, New York and other places to Jackson. Read Edward Onasi's uh, recent book, Free to Land. And there's another book called How Social Movements Die, which show that when you're making progress, that's when these structures move against you. But they only move against you because of, finally, as Du Bois says, the great fear. The great fear is y'all going to tap into this energy. And don't worry, it's coming. Smile on my pants can't stop it. No chin Tom Cotton out of Arkansas can't stop it. And they know they can't stop it. That's why they out here acting a damn fool. <laughs> we'll stop with that. Uh oh. So I shut yeah. my mic off. All right. I never shut off your mic, Karen Hunter. Because <laughs> <laughs> these folks be with you seven days a week. Listen, and let, me, let me say thank you to Gary um, and, and thank his wife for her service. And thank you for, you know, all of the people who introduced somebody to this. Yes. You, you know, you have you have passed a baton and this is our job. Everybody in the comments that you're, you're connecting with each other. I see you. Um, this is these are the seeds to the to the world we want to live in, and we are all participants. So I just want to thank his wife for introducing him to my show, that then brought him to this space. How did you get here? Everyone is like, I'm late. You're not late. You're right on time. No, there'll be forty plus. Uh, if you, this is your first time here, you now have a rabbit hole that you can spend the next two months going down. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, enjoy. And subscribe. And tell yeah. people to subscribe. You jumped up another thousand and a half since we saw each other. Yes. Come on. Yes. And, you know, because what this says to the world, because, you know, people program based on these algorithms, right? Mm. They tell advertisers or what have you what we like and who we are. So why not tell them we like this? That's right. You know, why not be intentional about that? And why not, you know, tip the scales? Let, let it not be, you know, just happen chance. Let's be purposeful about how we show the world what it is we really care about. We mm. care about knowledge and empowerment. We care about ourselves. So let's show that. Um, and I thank everyone who has subscribed as well. Um, let's let's go to, to Jackie. It's very humbling. Um, and as you're talking about Mississippi, you're, you're absolutely right. The Lumumbas, but there's the there's a whole other organizing body there that no one's really talking about. And you know, I had a vision back in 2014 of Black Wall Treating that I made that a verb, Black Wall Street in seven cities, because that's a number of completion. Y'all ain't got to at me on that. But um, <laughs> Jackson, Mississippi was was one of them. That, that, oh, soil, sure. that soil, those trees have yes. our flowing through. And, and we need to, we need to make sure 
just because of the Cindy Hyde Smith and, and the lion ass woman uh, that said Emmett Till whistled at her and all of those people that wanted to lynch. Who's still alive. Yeah, who's still alive? Carol Bryant, Carolyn Bryant. Um, who's and, and, you know, name. All yeah. due respect, I don't know Timothy Tyson. I have his book. I've read his books. He did a great book on Robert Williams. I knew Mabel Williams. So I, but bruh, let me tell you something. You don't sit on that for 10 years and get a pass. She told you that 10 years ago. Yeah. And you waited until your book came out. This is exactly what we are not doing. That's right. So uh, let Mississippi be in the, at the at the, at the uh, crossroads of a new America. That's right. I love that. Um, let's welcome in Jackie. Jackie's from Houston, where they rap a lot. I love to say that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jackie. Hey, hey, Dr. Carr. Herbaragani. Oh, Jay, my son said Barigani. It's, uh, it's almost Kwanzaa time, ain't it? Almost, almost. My sister and them down there. So, <laughs> yeah, all right. We, What's going on down there in Houston? Y'all holding on? Look like the uh, governor's crazy. We we keep on keeping on. Yes, we are. We're yet holding on, and we keep on keeping on. That is true. Our governor is what he is. Uh, Texas is what it is. So, yeah, they can't That's stop true. it. Do you listen to the Pacifica uh, station? No. Pacific I've run out of time. Oh, <laughs> my man, uh, my man, uh, what's my name? Oh, man. I'm thinking of them now. They used to all, oh, used to be around Texas Southern. He was Dino. Oh, Rodgers. yeah. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I know who you're talking about. They yeah, have a big thing yeah. uh, that they're redoing. They they kind of re, they rebuild in the area. There's a, there's oh, a big, uh, yes, yes. Okay. There's a lot of black people coming back into that area and they're re, revitalizing it. Um, like it's, it's, it's like turkey leg. There's all these cool things that are, that are, I would guess, say, nouveau black people coming back into that area and building up like um, Emancipation Park, the oh, really? Houston Park, all those things. Yeah, a lot of people are coming back. I mean, and, and, and the good thing about Houston is that I feel like we have a, a thriving middle class black set of black people. Um, so, That's you know, it's, it's unique. Park. People don't know, but they, they, we know George Floyd, of course. But people don't. Some people outside of Houston don't know Jack Yates. Of course, Jack Lake High School. Jack Yates came came out of enslavement. He came from North Carolina to Texas, and he's one of the ones that put their money together to buy Emancipation Park. That's one of the oldest pieces of property owned by Black people in the South. That's where Juneteenth was set off from the jump. <laughs> I love it. I'm sorry. What's going on? What's your red sodas and all? Uh, I just had two two quick things that I wanted to ask. The first one being, you talk a little bit about the classism and, and the black race. Oh. And I just, you always seem to have like a, a tank of knowledge or you have a whole big thing. So if you, no. if you could like recommend some things that we can kind of look at that, cause I don't think we talk about that enough because it seems like the elite black people sometimes are not having the same struggles uh, in the same capacity as other black people, but then there are some struggles that are true about all black people, if that makes sense. But, mm. but the, the second thing before you say that is if we were in church, and this is church for some people, and we were like saying, hey, we have a building fund. You don't have to answer it right away. But for you and for Karen, I really think this is God's work. And I really think that the ancestors really don't make mistakes. So I'm getting myself. Uh, so <laughs> what I would think about, what I would like you to think about, it doesn't have to be an immediate answer. Like if we had a building fund and you said, hey, if we had these resources, I could do this. I don't want you to get a second job. I don't want Karen to have to do more work. Yeah. But I did mention that we have a, a thriving middle class, upper yes. middle class, you know, and we have resources. And I think that 
it's on us when we have been blessed to bless, you know, bless further the mission and to build legacy, um, you know, through our dollars. Cause we, I, you know, yes, I spend yes. money on lots of things and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to just say, okay, we have the chat dollars, but I just want to say, if you think of something in the next six months, 12 months, whatever number it is, let us know so we can kind of direct it. I know you already have the thing with Terry, with the reporter, you know, with your journalism, but if there's anything else that you say, hey, we want this thing to happen, you know, um, so um, uh, let me let me just jump in. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. Appreciate you. Appreciate all of Houston. Love all y'all. No question. Um, Tell my sister I say hello. She down there with my mama. They over there right now. <laughs> hey, hey, car family. Um, so you know, we talked about a book club in 2021, but it's not just a book club, you know, um, nothing is ever just a thing, you know? So yeah, we'll be studying books, but it's, it's going to be much broader than that. And that's going to be subscription based. So that's one thing, but part of that, cause I've been spending the last several weeks with some, uh, you know, um, tech people to, to figure out how we can build a thing that we're not dependent upon. You know, there's certain servers that are connected to the biggies and at any point in time, they can push a button and like, destroy your stuff, right? <laughs> we, we need to have an independent space, which requires land, servers. I'm, I'm, I'm being transparent for a reason right now, and I'm not giving away the whole thing. But what, I, what I've been talking about over the last several weeks is we're building this thing out because, again, we should have a Star Wars system built into everything that we do. Is Can there be a component? And this is inspired by you. So, Carl, you said Carter G. Woodson had these kids put five on it. How about that? And we're going to have a section to put five on it. Oh. And for and for for five dollars for a year, we're going to build a fund, and then we're going to turn around and collectively pick companies that we're going to invest in. So, what do we need as a community? I know we have detergent, true. I know we have a toilet paper company. What else do we need as Black people? And every month, we fund a company, tech or otherwise. That services the community. Yes. Now there are a lot of people out there, you know, buy from a black woman. You know, there there are places that you buy, buy from a black where you can go and buy from a black woman, or you can go and buy from, you know, I love black people. You can go and buy, uh, it, uh, what is a uh, Black Wall Street app, and then there's you know, Spendify. There are a lot of places where we can go, but sure. there's none where we have an investment. And the goal with these companies is to take them public, right, so that we can all have shares. You know, so if you put five on it, you want to be able to see three, five years down the line. This is now on the stock exchange, which is raging, which is doing well, which is why I have Terry Egioma. Uh, <laughs> yes. We are doing this not for the money. We're doing this for the introduction, for people to get comfortable with this stock market, which is where banks are making their money, which is where the one percent are making their money. Ke Kelly Luffler and all of those you know, uh, insider trading ass uh, Congress people, that's where they're making their money. While America starves, while America is struggling, while people are on bread lines, Wall Street's doing well. So we need to be right. in those spaces and understand it. So Terry's doing something I think is genius, which is literally showing you what she does and how she became a millionaire in her 30s, right? Yes. So it's not so mystical. It's not for them, it's for us. 
And many of us, our ancestors were on those auction blocks on Wall Street. We were traded. So we need to understand this from that tertiary level, which is what we're doing with this. Now the byproduct, hopefully we'll get, you know, enough money to to help seed some of the things. But when we, when we launched this thing in 2021, support it because it's going, I believe money's currency. If it just comes in and stops, then it's not doing what it's supposed to do. No, that's exactly right. Back out. It's that's, that's exactly right. Science of it. So that's, that's exactly what right. that's my contribution to it. So I'm gonna jump off so you can answer her other questions. No, no, no. Karen, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to think about the class piece and Karen and everybody listening, which is why it's so important to subscribe to this channel. To to let's take a quantum leap to continue to participate in this conversation. Um, I want to thank you, Jackie. Um, the class issue is very delicate issue, but it is essential to understand. And again, I'll point you initially again, back to Anna Hegeman again, to the gift of chaos, uh, decades of American discontent. This is her, uh, final memoir. It's kind of like a testament. And just by way of dealing with class very quickly, we'll, 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 we'll wrap this up. You know, Hegeman was born in this little town, um, Anoka, Minnesota, northern Minnesota. Um, there were no black people around her except her family, mother and father. First time she met black teenagers, um, they took her to St. Paul for a mixer kind of thing. Her mother did. Her father got mad. And who was there? Roy Wilkins, who was in St. Paul. He was in high school at the time. In fact, that's one of the reasons why she could go in and talk to Wilkins to massage him into acting right for the March on Washington. They've known each other since they were they were kids. But she is from what might be considered an upper or middle class black family surrounded by whites. And when she goes to Russ College and then continues on and does this whole life of work, she's able to see the class distinctions. In fact, one of her critiques in the March on Washington movement and then of the 63 March and coming forward, including of the black church and of the end of the end of the NAACP. During this time, this 1960s, she's saying, you, you're not really in touch with the people in the community, you're a little bit far away from the people. And that's not the type of leadership we need to engender. And so she has critiques of the Nation of Islam and other things, but still one thing you can say about them, they were the people. And of course, you know, you down there in Houston, I got, you know, we know about the NOI down there. I know them brothers and sisters down there. Um, but the question of class for us is really a question of what are we using our class status for? So it's very important that everyone hear what you've said. Some people have some disposable income. Some people have some resources and they want to contribute to the uplift of our people. That's the correct, seems to me, um, and I say it seems to me as if it's just me. That is the correct way to think about class advantage and class status. Let me think about this for a week because we're going to talk about class, but I would suggest even somebody like Anna, Anna, Anna Hedgeman coming from what might be considered upper class, but spending her life in terms of mass movements as an organizer, really those kind of experiences, more so than, for my, in my mind, any type of theoretical analysis by people who are coming through and trying to come up with. No, look at the life experience of people who have committed their lives to not bridging that gap, but eliminating that sensibility and see therein lie the blueprints for how we can then pick that up and adapt it to our age. That's number one, but I'm gonna think some more about it. We can, 
um, of this, these next few days between now and next week. But the second thing finally is this, and Karen has already laid it out. I don't really need to add anything to that. I just want to say that for many years, um, uh, an organization I was able to join as a young man when I was in Columbus, Ohio, going to school, grad school and law school, the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations. Uh, there was a brother there named Mariba Kelsey, who's now, he's from Atlanta, he's back in Atlanta. Uh, he and his family um, started something called the African Center for Study and Worship in Columbus. And that 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 collective, Tawi Village and the, the Afrocentric Personal Development Shop, independent black institutions. They had a storefront in East Columbus that we would meet at every Friday night. We'd sit in there three, four, five hours reading, discussing, debating, folks from the neighborhood, community. That was really my intellectual grounding that whole time I was at Ohio State. It wasn't in the classroom, although there were some great professors and I had access to the library and the Frank Hale Black Culture Center, my man Larry Williamson and them. But it was really East Columbus that gave me that trajectory. And one thing we've been doing and talking about in ASCAC for many years, we have a building fund, is that we need an independent physical space. And in my mind, it's going to be a space that can accommodate 100,000 books that will be a big enough building or set of buildings with plenty of land so that we can have summer institutes so that children can come and learn how to do oral history so that we can convene, have put up a tent, barbecue, cook, go inside, plan, plot, send things out, record things like this. And that it won't be just one place. We have one in Mississippi, Alabama. I always think about the South in particular. And those places will be the places. And this isn't HBCUs. This is where I'm in. It's not historically black colleges because for all the good HBCUs have done and do, I work at one. And that's a deliberate choice. I work, I work in black spaces. I made that choice and I will always make that choice. They still are, are hardwired into a rhythm that we need to be able to have other places that are completely distinct from those places. Because our resources, we need to have places where our resources are completely controlled by us, supported by us, and where a six-year-old girl, a 14-year-old boy, somebody comes in and says, here's my $5 subscription service. I'm a member of this collective. I'm coming down for three weeks. I'm coming to sit at the feet of elders. I'm coming to show you how I can flip this into this next song that's going to make a million dollars. And I'm show you how we're going to connect all this. And I know it all because I have a place to go to to sit for three weeks. Are there models? Yes, there are models. One of them is Per Ankh in Senegal our brother uh, Ayikwe Arma, uh, who has developed something like that in Senegal, the Writers Collective, the Cultural Collective there. And there are others, but uh, Jackie, I wanna thank you for this. And, and yeah, and Karen has already, you know, well, I won't say anything else because what she said, because she's already said it. I'm gonna tell you right now though, I don't plan on retiring from a place where the archives can disappear into other people's control. And I don't care whether it's a HWCU or a HBCU. It's time for us to have independent bases where we can do our work for ourselves. That's that that's of utmost importance to me. Thank you, sis. And the Dr. Gray Card Library in Tennessee is oh. going to be one of those places. Um, no. <laughs> wherever we're gonna be, we're gonna have it, Karen. We're gonna be here. Yeah. I wouldn't name you always, you know how I am. I wouldn't name it for me. It's well, gonna be named for I, I'm here for that. I'm here for that. Um, because as long as your name is spoken, you will never die. And that is uh, African, and so we're gonna we're gonna follow the traditions of our ancestors. Let me um, thank everybody who has been here today, donated, bought a T-shirt, put a right. tweet up, who subscribed, who yes. shared, 
the link um, because we don't do this without you. We can't do it without you. No. Uh, what's a class without students? And what 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 you know? And I'm I'm one of the students, so let me just co- co- I am too. about We're that. We're co-learners. We're co-learn. We're learning yeah. from each other. Karen, those folks you brought in, did, oh my god! I no, they brought themselves in. I, I put it out, and then randomly, the only person I knew uh, a little bit is Jackie because she came to my retreat last year. Oh. Uh, yeah, Jackie, I believe, is an electrician, so I know her a little bit. But it's you know. And she was supposed to be in last week, but she didn't have internet where she was because she was out in them streets, social uh, <laughs> distance, I'm sure. Uh, so I, you know, we were going to do three, but uh, you know, I was like, all right, you pop in. But yeah, this this has evolved into something that I didn't imagine, but it's everything that I, I think is supposed to be oh, yeah. starting. I, I so, can't tell you. Yeah. I can't tell you. Can't. I'm, when we get off this in a second, I'm gonna sit quietly, and then I gotta go back here and pull out for us the living by Merle Evers, mm-hmm. Evers by Charles Evers, the autobiography of uh, Mega Evers that was compiled. I'm gonna spend, I'm gonna spend this evening with the Evers family because that was, my God. Yeah. Shot yeah. in his back in the driveway. Y'all gonna pay for this. Don't even worry about it. And that ain't even our objective. That's just gonna be incidental. But yeah, thank Don't you. Happen. Thank you. Yeah. Let me tell you how much I love you. I love you too. As always. And I love everybody here. Yes, uh, all of y'all. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll see y'all next week. 